In the depths of the Roaring Twenties, a quiet coastal town clings to the edge of the Massachusetts coast, shrouded in ominous tales and whispered rumours. Welcome to Innsmouth, a place veiled in shadows and secrets, where the line between sanity and madness is as fragile as the crumbling cliffs that overlook the churning sea. Once a bustling fishing community, Innsmouth languishes in decay, its dilapidated buildings bearing witness to the passage of time and the eerie transformation that has taken hold. But behind the worn facades, the ever-present fog, a darker truth lurks, a truth that defies human comprehension and threatens to unleash unspeakable horrors upon an unsuspecting world. This is 1928, Fall of Innsmouth, a campaign of psychological and eldritch horror using the Call of Cthulhu 7th edition rules by Chaosium, and based on the stories of H.P. Lovecraft. The Call of Cthulhu role-playing game is written by Sandy Peterson with later revisions by Lynn Willis. The 7th edition is a collaboration between Paul Fricker and Mike Mason. Music used in this podcast is by Vivek Abhishek, Kevin McLeod and Ghoulish Grin Films. Welcome back everyone to part three of Bless the Beast and Children. You've once again entered the world of Eldritch Horror. Good luck. You're going to need it. Because shit's going to hit the proverbial fan in this one. It's the finale of the current scenario. The investigations are over. And this is when you are truly going to be in danger. Your pursuit of the baby snatchers, your quest to save the life of the young infant Carter Anderson is about to bear fruit. But will you be able to save his life while ensuring you escape with your own? Or will you simply be trading your own existence for his future? When we last left off, your investigations had given you a destination. The small fishing village of Falcon Point, a couple hours to the north of Arkham. And allow me to post the Owlbear link so you can actually look on the map of the Miskatonic Valley. A small fishing town that is officially incorporated as part of the township of Innsmouth. The epicentre from which all of these horrific things you've been investigating appear to originate. With Baxter in seeming serious condition in St. Mary's Teaching Hospital, you decided to put your investigations on hold for the day, 
spend the rest of the day recovering, planning your next move, and waiting for Baxter to be discharged. You agreed to leave for Falcon Point first thing the next morning. Oh, by the way, how much um, HP did Baxter get back for his overnight stay in, stay in transfusion? A single hit point. Ouch. Not good blood. He ended I... up being in as not a critical condition as you thought, and was deemed fit to walk and act of his own devices the very next day. But when Boothby's when Boothby's car swung by the hospital to pick Baxter and Lord Smythe, who'd spent the night watching over him up, Baxter did not look like his usual self. Bandages, thick bandages, still visible under his coat and wincing in obvious pain each time he took a step. You silently agreed that you would do your best to look out for him, to make sure that whatever awaits you in Falcon Point would not push him over the edge and into the jaws of death that he had been so miraculously snatched away from. You spent just enough time to alert Charles Anderson your patron, that you had uncovered a fairly promising lead on where young Carter had been taken. And I'll ask you a question. When he pried, because of course he did, when he, when his eyes lit up and he demanded to know where the scum had taken his son, did you tell him? That your destination was Falcon Point. I believe that we should. In the case that we fail, you should. You must succeed. Does anyone Falcon disagree Point. with this? Does anyone disagree? Um, I don't. Baxter wouldn't disagree. Yeah, well, after all, he's a professional. He'd be relaying all the information he finds as he goes. He's his client, after all. Mm, Falcon Point. Mm -hmm. Can't say I've heard of it, says Charles Anderson. But uh, if I don't hear from you within the next two, three days, then I'll know where to search for you. Wait, I'll spare no expense, uh, Pinkerton. I'll send in Pinkertons, I'll send in detectives, I'll pull any strings I have, I'll, I'll send in federal agents if I have to. If that's where you're sure my son's being taken. And so, Charles Anderson has been made aware of your destination. In the event that you do fail, someone will be sent to pick up the pieces. Probably not in time to save you from whatever horrible fate has befallen you, but there will be a trail to follow. Before you leave Arkham, Baxter is contacted by Chief Aza Nichols of the Arkham Police. 
Baxter did alert him before you set off to investigate the suspected hideout of Castle and Talamentes yesterday. And although the police didn't arrive at the hideout until well after Baxter had already run afoul of that horrific dog-like creature. Way too late to assist in any way. They did find enough to determine that this was indeed the hideout of the kidnappers and when Baxter informed Chief Nichols that the group was headed off to Falcon Point in pursuit of the kidnappers, he agreed that this was most likely the most promising need. He lamented that Falcon Point, being incorporated as part of Innsmouth, was outside the jurisdiction of the Arkham Police, and so he couldn't send any of his officers as backup, but he asked you to swing by the police station before you left town, and you did so, and Baxter, as you stepped into the little reception lobby, the secretary simply nodded, smiling, expressing her expressing her gratitude at the powers that be that you'd managed to make something of a recovery after running afoul of those kidnappers and handed you an envelope, unlabeled. Inside, you're told, is a letter penned by Chief Azer himself, explaining the investigation that you're currently undertaking and the legalities thereof. To be handed to anyone in Falcon Point who requires additional persuasion so that they may cooperate and help you if they can. Finally, before you left Innsmouth, you realised that you were missing one of your group, Alfredo. The psychotic midget was nowhere to be found as you awakened in Charles Anderson's penthouse suite at the Hotel Miskatonic. Instead, a hastily penned note on the coffee table by the front door, simply reading, Gone out to get dynamite. Don't worry about waiting up for me. I know how to get the Falcon Point. I'll catch up with yous. Well advised, perhaps, to sneak out in the middle of the night try to get dynamite without telling any of you and you wonder remembering that blue board bluebird being flung at full speed through the hotel window an obvious warning whether alfredo had made a wise choice but whatever you whatever you did you couldn't get a hold of him now, so you decided to continue on with your investigation and hope, hope that whatever underworld contacts he decided to tap 
had his best interests and yours at heart and weren't in league with Henry Snowden or his underlings. So, we start today's session with you drawing closer and closer to Falcon Point. As expected, the drive through the undulating hills and untouched countryside of the Miskatonic Valley didn't take very long. About two and a half hours with Lord Smite's driver being very particular about his choice to stick to roads that he knew the Morris Motors the Morris Motor could handle and so it's just shy of the early afternoon just coming up to lunchtime as your group of intrepid investigators arrives at Falcon's Point. The sun casting a warm golden glow over the tranquil sea. The village of Falcon's Point seems almost frozen in time, as if untouched by the rapid advancement of the outside world. Wooden houses with weathered shingles line the coastline, their paint fading with age. Fishing boats bob gently in the harbour. Their colourful sails, the only source of only source of colour in this drab, almost lifeless little village. I'm going to put a map of Falcon's Point up in Owlbear, just so you can get to grips with what are going to be your surrounds for the rest of this session. You turn onto Falcon Point Road, the main street that runs through the village, the only street that runs through the village. The only thing you could call a street, paved in cobblestone rather than a simple dirt track flanked with mud dug into the undergrowth. And as Smythe directs his driver to pull into a patch of vacant land near the end of the road, next to what passes for this town's commercial sector really just a handful of ramshackle wooden buildings the Morris motor comes to a stop alright I'll keep the engine running Gov says Colin you best uh, handle your investigations and I'll uh, stay right here I don't like the look of any of these locals, he says, eyeing the occasional passerby who 
stares in your direction with eyes narrowed, wary, and then continues on. I believe the boy we interrogated mentioned a cabin in the woods, yes? Oh, yeah, yeah. A cave on the beach, Gov, if I remember, says Colin. There's a lot of beach, though. Well, Oi, we've Mr. got Boynton Beach running along the northern cliff face just outside of town, according to my map, he says, as he unfurls the road map you bought of the Miskatonic Valley. I suppose you could comb the beach, though I don't think that would get you what you need, at least not in a timely manner. I suppose Mr. you best do what you do best and ask some of the locals, eh? Mr. Baxter, you are the investigator here. I shall follow your lead. Baxter is still quite rattled, um, being mauled by a horrible dog, driven to hospital, had having quite terrible first aid applied to him, and currently... Uh, flying the high skies on painkillers. Uh, but he's still up for the job and looks out yeah. over towards what he thinks is the industrial district. Yeah. So the, the commerce district. The commerce district, which is uh, a couple of uh, ramshackle wooden facades alongside the cobblestone street. And two of them appear to be actual businesses. One of them with a faded sign blowing in the wind, rapping loudly as it slams against the wooden facade, reading in faded stenciling, Abigail Harding, postmaster. And another building, separated from the postmaster by what appears to be someone's coastside shack and the vacant lot where you're currently parked is a shop front with dust covered incredibly murky window displaying a mannequin wearing ladies fashions that are at least five years out of date and a faded sign reading van de ford's bait and tackle but if i'm not mistaken the, the first place we should go is the place with the most foot traffic general store it is general store it is so as you make your way to the general store, I will allow everybody to go ahead and roll a quick idea check, just so I can recap you on exactly what points of intel you have, so that you may decide... Right? Yeah, intelligence. Oh, I got an 8 against 70. Yeah. Intelligence. I got a Whoa. 99 against Please 40. Roll. Jesus, yeah. <laughs> Boothby's like, yeah, this would be a perfect place for a shipping center. <laughs> yeah. Boothby's just sort of scowling as he looks around. This ramshackle 
bait and tackle shop is the only thing that passes for a store here, and he's just thinking, this would be the perfect spot for a Boothby's. No competition at all. Baxter's pretty sure he saw the mannequin move, so he's up. With an 81% faster than Smiley, just scanning the streets. Paranoid. Jumping at shadows, you all are, and and I don't blame you, because Mm. as you step out onto the cobbled street, the villagers wrapped in thick coats against the late morning chill give you wary glances. Some of them offer friendly nods as you pass by, but you can't help but notice a sense of unease among them as if something lurks beyond the placid facade of this sleepy fishing village. And every time your backs are turned, you can't help but have the impression that they're giving you sidelong glances through their wary judging eyes. You discussed your the clues that you were working with on your way up, and yet, Ruth, you're the first one who voices, along with Connie, what you're actually working with here. You've got the letter apparently written by Henry Snowden, found in Castle and Talamente's little hideout, telling them to come Mm. and deliver the child they'd kidnapped to Falcon's Point. The letter was postmarked Innsmouth. It still has the stamp there on the back of the envelope, indicating that it was posted from within Innsmouth Township. You also have the description of the kidnappers, Castle and Talamentes themselves, and of course, the testimony extracted from Danny Ames under great duress that he was held (laughs) in a cave on the beach. Boynton Beach, if you were to make a guess. A long strip of milk-white sand. I don't runs... suppose the, um, the letter had a return address, did it? It does, in fact. You flip it over, and it's addressed to a H. Kelso, care of Jack Kelso. Falcon Point, Massachusetts. I do. I do also have this note that it was saying it was under the under the farmhouse. Yeah, under the farmhouse. Under the, under the beach. Yeah. The cave on the beach was beach. Under, under the, the farmhouse. farmhouse. Whatever and that means. That narrows it down a bit because. As you make your way, as you were making your way down the main street of Falcon Point, you could see Boynton Beach to the north. The whole village being situated atop a cliff that looks down onto the beach itself, a long strip of milk white sand touching up against the almost inky black Atlantic Ocean. You saw a couple of houses dotting the beach. A couple of them surely farmhouses. But too many, perhaps, to go knocking one by one. Not without alerting your quarry that you're looking for them. And so, Baxter, 
you've decided to head to the general store, and that seems to be a sensible idea. Does everyone else agree? <laughs> the music doesn't. Uh, <laughs> the music doesn't, no. I actually do agree, yes. Yeah, that's fine, that's fine with me. This is a bad place to get separated. Mm. Yeah. So, Falcon Point's sole commercial outlet is Van de Ford's Bait and Tackle Shop. You pass by the weathered mannequin wearing a faded summer dress that's about 10 seasons out of date, and Baxter pushes open the single wooden door. A bell rings somewhere off in the distance in the cramped, dusty, dimly lit store. There's barely enough room for all of you to stand side by side in the tiny store, cramped in between shelves carrying... Fishing supplies, gasoline, coffee, tobacco, and canned goods. There's a single counter, obscured deeply in the shadows cast by the shelves at the very back of the store. And there's a withered old man, shuffling out of a back room, summoned by the bell. He's surprised, very obviously, to see out-of-towners in his store this many all at once. All of these potential customers, you get the feeling that he's never had to serve this many people at once. He opens his mouth in stunned surprise and then quickly composes himself and says, Ah! Uh, uh, out-of-towners! Ah! Uh, just passing through, I take it. Uh, but I'll help you as best I can. Uh, what you see on the shelves is what I have. Uh, hopefully you can find what you're looking for. Unless there's something else I can do for you. Baxter seizes the opportunity by rustling up a slightly more innocent conversation. Actually, in the uh, business of Scuttlebutt, uh, what kind of rumors are flying around town at this time? Well, you know, this is uh, this is Falcon Point, son. Uh, less than fifty people live here, and not much happening. And I don't suppose any of our rumors would interest you. <laughs> nothing like uh, nothing. Nothing that'd pique your interest, you know, Mrs. Jones maybe having a thing with, uh, the milkman, or, uh, out-of-towners passing through. Certainly nothing like what happens in whatever big city you're from. Baxter is well aware from his experience that smaller towns usually have the worst things going on. But he lets that slide. Um, instead, he proffers the um, the back of the letter and asks the man if he could point him to exactly where this um, where this return address might be. Kelso, huh? Yeah, I suppose that'd be referring to Kelso's farm. Uh, he's got his uh, farm. Uh, 
up north from here, down Innsmouth Road, and the farmhouse you see right there on the cliff face uh, will be his. Uh, he owns the land all the way down to Boynton Beach. Uh, as for the letter itself, uh, you might want to ask Abby about that. He points over Baxter's shoulder at the door. Uh, a postmaster. Uh, she'd know anything about that letter. Don't know how you managed to get a letter that was meant for uh, Kelso. Uh, I suppose... Uh, I've been out of towners heading up that way. I didn't know they were heading to Kelso's farm specifically, but... The old man shrugs. Guess it ain't my place to say. Out of towners, you say? And we're not the first? Oh, we get out of towners all the time, usually passing through. Sometimes I sell them gasoline. It's about the only reason they stop here in town. Out of town as ain't out. Ah, sometimes they buy some fish and supplies. Uh, sometimes some canned food. Usually they're heading out somewhere up north on a camping trip or what have you. Usually yeah. they're usually they're passing between this city and that. Uh, don't suppose any of them would be uh, of interest to you, but uh, there is that fella and that other fellow who've stopped in here a few times over the last week, though, actually. Any of them Back. seem... Oh, sorry. Oh, no, you can go, that's fine. Uh, any of them seem unusual... Like, they might be a little bit anxious about something, or shifty in any way. He thinks for a moment, stroking his withered chin, and then finally... Mr. Vanderford nods, and he says... Yeah, come to think of it, there are some that I'd say fit that description, but, uh... Well, they seemed like the sort of types who, uh, preferred to keep their business to themselves, and I don't rightly think I should just be chin-wagging with strangers about them. They didn't look like the type who'd take kindly to it at any rate. Speaking of what they looked like, um, Baxter relays to them the description of Telementes and Castle. As you give the description of the kidnappers, he listens and he nods and... You notice the very obvious flicker of recognition in his eyes. He stops short of confirming that he's seen them. Instead, he just frowns and he says, uh, May I ask... Uh, why you'd be looking for these gentlemen? We're debt collectors. They uh, owe us some money and we've been trying to find them for a while. Hmm. Ruth, Bonnie, Smythe, Baxter, do any of you wish to back Boothby up on this claim? 
Yeah, Bax is going to flash them his um, his business card, his uh, private detective business card. Private detective business card, indeed. As you flash it, he raises an eyebrow, he peers over your shoulder towards the women and then to Smythe. And I suppose, uh, I suppose this feller here is, uh, what, your client or something? Uh, no offense, but, uh, you don't exactly Understand look like the I'm... debt detector, debt collector type. Uh, I will merely say that my investments have suffered of late. And I intend to recoup them. I will ask. Lord Smythe to make an intimidate check while Boothby makes a fast talk check with advantage because Baxter's flashed his card. And Baxter, what is your law skill? Very high. Um, uh, reasonably high. 60. 60, yeah. So, yeah, I'll grant that bonus die to uh, Boothby. Well, 67 to 70. Is that a pass or a fail for you, Smythe? That's a fail. I've only got like a 42. Mm, would you like to push that? Honestly, Baxter is the one on here. If I don't come across as scary, that's all right. Yeah. Investments. Right. And, uh... It's normal for, uh... Investors to, uh... Accompany debt collectors out into their field on their investigations and the like. Well, you saw that they were some intimidating looking men. We uh, need all the hands we can get for this one. They might be a little bit more inclined uh, to violence than the average person. What's your fast talk, Boothby? 70. Yep, so that with the past before... I think that'll be enough to sort of gloss over Smythe not quite looking like he belongs here. And so his eyebrow still raised. Van de Ford just smiles and he says, eventually, then he shrugs and he says, ah, right, look, uh, I won't ask too many questions. All I will admit you got the look of authority about you. So, yeah, look, I remember that guy. The big guy and the Spaniard. Yeah, yeah, him. The two of them, uh, they got gas. Uh, stopped in first, uh, I gotta say. It had to be about a month and a half. Two months ago was the first time. About every week since then, they've been stopping by here, filling up on gas, and then they uh, head up to the north, down the main street, and up Innsmouth Road. I'd say that's roughly in the direction of Jack Kelso's farm, but... Well, Kelso's a local, and I, uh... I wouldn't have rightly assumed that they were heading to his farm. Uh, it was my assumption that they were just two out-of-towners that were passing through on their way somewhere further up north. Uh, maybe they had business in Innsmouth or something along those lines. Here's the uh, other question. Uh, did they happen to have uh, custody of any children as they passed through? 
And now that you mention it, when they was here uh, earlier this week, uh, had a young infant in the back seat of the car, said they was babysitting for a sister-in-law. I didn't quite believe it, but I didn't want to cause any trouble. Uh, not without a towners, and especially not without a towners looking like that. Besides, uh, well, uh, they were keen to just, uh, pay for their gas and move on, and I recall, uh, was actually rather strange, uh, they overpaid for the gas, actually, must have been in quite a rush, if you'll excuse me for a moment, he says, he turns, and shuffles back through the door behind the counter. And about a minute later comes back out, holding with something clutched in his right hand. And he smiles as he slams his right hand down on the down on the wooden counter and then unfurls his fingers, revealing what appears to be a roughly palm-sized, featureless coin of solid gold. They paid for it with this. Boothby picks it up and holds it up to Smythe and goes, Is this one of your, uh, investments? It's an antiquity I've seen before. It should have an emblem. God, if you filed it off. No emblem on that, sir. Says Van de Ford, and indeed you turn it around and there's no sign there were ever any markings on it. If you had to guess, it would appear that somebody simply melted some gold down and cast it in this shape. He's melted them down. Damnable. Ah. I hand the coin back to the man. It's bullion at this point. Unidentifiable. I can't demand its return. Hey, you don't think these fellas were dangerous, were you? Do you? I believe they were exceptionally so. Well, look, uh, like I said before, I'd talk to Abby about that letter. She might know more, but... If you're planning on heading up to Kelso's farm and, and you're heading after these folk and they're dangerous, then, uh, he gestures around at the shelves behind you. I might, uh, suggest you make sure you got, uh, any supplies you think you'll need. Look, I mainly carry things for the locals, fishing supplies, bait and tackle, as the sign outside side says, but, uh, I notice, uh, one of you appears to, uh, been through the wars lately. He gestures to Baxter, and he's, you can see, Baxter, that even though you've tried your best to cover the bandages up by pulling your coat tightly over them, there's still threads of gauze visible under the cuffs of, uh, under your cuffs and collars. He says, I, I would suggest, uh, Taking a first aid kit with you, just in case. I'll cover that. And I'll pat Jaxter gently on the shoulder. 
And also throw in a few things. Yeah. Like a few tins of paraffin and some fire starters. And, oh, a, and, a, and a lantern or two. Might want to get some gas as well, just in case we uh, run out. Good need point. It. I'll pay for an extra jerry can. As you list off the things you need, he starts to bash numbers on the old mechanical cash register and reads the number and says, Ah, that'll come to, uh, that'll come to $22.45. But this is nothing for Lord Smythe. What is your credit rating, Lord Smythe? 50, the best big game gun, gun hunter can have. Once it was once, mm. much more. But he's fallen a bit. For 50, I would say, between you and Boothby, $22.45 is nothing. And the man's eyes glimmer as you hand him the bills and the coins. He quickly rings up the purchases, bundles them all into some paper bags, and he says, Oh, well, I can close early this week. <laughs> Thank you very much. You've been of service, my should you move that good coin, I'd suggest doing it far from here, just in case. Oh, I, uh, I plan on holding on to this one. It's a curiosity, you know. Uh, this is a sleepy town. You don't normally get to see things like that gold bullion. Oh, that could be a family heirloom. That could be inheritance for my grandchildren. That could be... Lord Smythe is just staring at him with... Cold, with cold uh, horror in his eyes. If it is part of your investments, I'd be happy to hand it over to you. After all, by right, it's yours. No. No. I'll take the matter up with the men who gave you that. Don't worry about it. He nods. And as you turn to leave, I would like Ruth and Boothby to make appearance checks for me, please. Oh god, okay. Okay. Uh, it's a pass. Uh, less than half, so... Less than half. So oh. Baxter, Smythe, and Connie shuffle out of the store, pulling the door shut behind them, and as they do, the bell jingles yet again somewhere off in the dusted shadow. The man's eyes narrow as he peers into Ruth's face, clearly trying to place her somewhere. He bites his lip and he says, Forgive me for saying, ma'am, I'm sure I've seen you somewhere. You wouldn't be in pictures by any chance. Ah, uh, not to my knowledge, but, uh, please? I can swear I've seen you somewhere before, and it's something subtly familiar about your jawline and your eyes, and... You are an acting, though, I can tell. You got the look, you got the mannerisms about you. Yeah, like I said, I, I, I do stage shows. Stage shows, ah. Bit too, uh... Bit too fancy for my tastes. If you ain't been in pictures, then I ain't seen you, but... He shrugs. Huh. 
Maybe you're reminding me of someone local or someone from around here. I wouldn't think too much into it, miss. I'm sorry for a prying. And then he turns to Boothby, says, You, though, you'd be Kenneth Boothby unless I'm mistaken. Boothby nods proudly and says the very same. Hmm. Not popular in these parts, I'll tell you that much. Your father once tried to buy me up, set up one of them fancy department stores here. <laughs> as if that would, as if that's something you need in a village of 50 people. Well, no, I, uh, I didn't accept his offer and, uh, just a heads up for you, uh, any locals you take the time to talk to around here are going to assume you're here because you're trying to splash money around and make this village part of your little empire. Not at the moment. Oh, you but... wouldn't do that, would you, Boothby? Boothby kind of grits his teeth and goes, No, I'm here on other business but uh and don't think you can he writes you know don't do think it. you can convince me to carry that trash you call literature either there's an ian fleming town i tell you that is there frenzy rolls in the clc because i think <laughs> would have frenzied um fleming are you a man of taste then you're my approval Fleming is a two-bit hack, but I uh, guess he's got I a proper distrust of the Belgians. I can prove wholeheartedly of the man. Shall we be off? You have a good day, folks, and uh, you'll be careful. And as you're stepping through the door, he takes one last look at Ruth, uh, and you hear him mutter, "Maybe, maybe one of them." As you pull the door shut, and once again taking in the salt-tinged sea air. Where to next? I believe the post office. It's right next door, right? Yeah. So, the post office isn't much of a post office. It looks pretty much identical in construction to the other wooden houses that flank the street, you get the impression that this is just somebody's house. And yet, Abigail Harding, the apparent postmaster, has hung up her shingle outside that declares this to be the post office. As you approach the post office and... Begin to make your way towards the front door. It seems you're just in time, as the door is flung open and out steps who could only be the postmaster, Abigail Harding. She's a grey-haired woman, perhaps in her late 50s, early 60s. Her face leathery worn by the sea air. She's dressed in 
very plain clothing, and the only thing interesting about her is the massive hessian sack that she's currently sling got slung over her right shoulder, hoisted in both her hands. She sees you standing there. She immediately raises an eyebrow. Out of towners, huh? Can I help a- you? I, uh, I gotta deliver these letters. She taps the sack with the palm. It's an awful lot of mail for a town of 50 people. Ah. Believe it or not, we get a lot of mail here. Not that we get it every day, you know. I pile it up, let it pile up, and at the end of the week I deliver it. And I also deliver to the outlying farms. So what? You want to send a letter to your folks back in the city, tell them you've made it this far, or what? Actually, ma'am, we would like to talk to you about a letter that we, uh, found. I don't, uh, Baxter, I assume you still have the letter. Yeah, Baxter pulls out the, um, letter from his, uh, breast pocket and shows her the back, backside with the, uh, farmstead's, uh, uh, information on it. Even look at the letter. Her eyes fixate on Boothby. She frowns and she says, Ah, you got the look of that Boothby. Made his way up here from Arkham thinking he could buy the whole town. And you're asking about a letter. Let me tell you, there ain't nothing for no Boothby here. Not Mr. Here. Vanderford just... said no, and that means no. Trust me, while I love your... Scenic little town. I'm not here on that kind of business right now. Actually, ma'am, um, we're currently investigating some um, fraud. We're trying to chase down some stolen goods, stolen money. Uh, it's a frightful, frightful, frightful experience. As you can see by my uh, condition, we've run into some hardships uh, trying to reacquire the stolen goods. She pats the base of the sack with her palm again, and she says, with a smug smile on her face, Look, I know I may not look like much, but I take my oath seriously. I ain't about to discuss the mail without a towners. I know you're saying there's fraud involved and all, but you brought a Boothby along with you, and as far as I'm concerned, if someone's... Fraud an old Boothby, then I'm especially not gonna help you. You, perha- you are a law-abiding citizen, madame, under the purview of the United States government, yes. That's what my oath says, and yeah, yeah, I am, I'm a, I'm a civil story. servant, I is. Alright, perhaps it would be best to show her the letter from the chief, Mr. Baxter. Baxter doesn't really enjoy um, having to rest on somebody else's laurels, but he kind of winces and pulls out the letter to show her. As you can see, we're on uh, official police business, actually, doing this. So your cooperation would be much appreciated, if you don't mind. Aza Nichols' letter under her face, and she 
quickly skims it, muttering under her breath, Arkham police and missing kids and... Yeah, but that's out of your jurisdiction, as far as I'm concerned. See, it says Arkham police here. Now... There ain't no missing kids in this town, and as far as I'm concerned, all you're doing is prying in a private people's business. But just the uh, same... If, if you claim that there's no missing children in this town, then how do you know? Where's your proof? Baxter, I'll ask you to make a law roll, and you may make it with a bonus die, as you do have the letter. You are on police business. Uh, that is a... That's a regular success. It's 35. Oh, oh wait, did you say um, I get extra for having the letter? You get a bonus dice. You can roll again, see if you get an even better degree of pass. If you like. Sure, no, that's worse. So that's a standard yeah. pass. Lovely. Her lips twist into a scale. And she says... Yeah, alright, I suppose. I don't know if there's missing kids, but, you know, I know everyone in this village, and I ain't seen anything I'd call suspicious. Just the same, though, I'd rather not have, uh, anyone from Arkham sniffing around bothering people, and I know if I don't answer your questions, that police chief of yours is liable to get the state police in here, and so what can I do for you? She says, resigning herself to fate. Two things. First, we need to know exactly where this letter came from and how to get there. We have some questions. Secondly, uh, semi-unrelatedly, we need to know if there are any uh, notable caves along the beachfront. Caves? Uh, mm, I don't know uh, nothing about that. Uh, see, most people don't spend a lot of time on Boynton Beach, you know, uh, it's got beach in the name, but it really ain't much a one. Uh, extremely cold. The ocean's far too salty and choppy to go swimming in. And besides, uh, most of the beach land, most of the waterfronts owned by Jack Kelso up north. She takes a look at the letter, flips it over, reads the address, and she says, Oh! Yeah, the, I've been getting a lot of letters uh, addressed to this uh, Snowden, mailed care of Mike Kelso at the Kelso farm. Uh, they seemed quite ordinary letters. They were postmarked in Arkham. Someone sending letters from Arkham to this Snowden fellow. Uh, this one, actually, uh, I don't remember this one being sent in... She frowns as she notices the stamp on the back. Ah, see here, it's postmarked in Innsmouth. So then why would it have Mike Kelso as the return address? Hmm. Look, I've been getting these for a while now. The last one was delivered uh, five or six days ago. I don't pry, I just deliver them. But if you want to take it up with Mike Kelso, uh, head on up Innsmouth Road. You'll see his farmhouse there on the uh, edge of the cliff overlooking the beach. You can't really miss it. Not for me to pry 
into what's written in the letters, you know, uh, my oaths and all. Uh, speaking of your oaths, uh, do you happen to have any letters for Mr. Snowden on your, on your person now? She frowns and then thinks for a moment. She unslings the sack, pulls it open, looks inside, rifling through envelopes and rolled up catalogues. And then she nods and she says, I do, in fact. Would have been sent no more than a day or two ago. Based on the postage stamp, I would have, del would have delivered it at the end of my route. See, I take all the farms to the south first, then I head north. So my Kelso would have been right at the very end. Would you mind if we, uh, took a brief look at that? Police business and all. To realize opening someone else's mail is a federal crime, she says. Yes, well, we're investigating a federal crime at this current time. She folds her arms. No, I know you're investigating, but all you got there is a letter from the police and... Hearsay that there's missing kids somewhere in town, and I can't let you look at that. It could be, it could be more than my job's worth. If 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 the district, if the district found out that I'd let you look, and that they they would take away my olds, and then this town'd be out without a postmaster. Perhaps we should put things differently. Yes, I agree. Perhaps we can save you that trip going all that way and deliver it for you. Hmm. She frowns. I would like Smythe to make me a persuade check. I'm not great at this. Sorry, Baxter has a trump card just in case. Oh, that's no. fine. I'm sure she'll believe you. <laughs> And while Lord Smythe does this, he's going to open his pocket and uh, tease Ooh. out a hundred dollar bill. So instead of making a persuade check, you may make a credit rating check. Oh my god. Seven, and I'm going to burn 17 luck to make this work. The $100 bill instantly catches her attention. She's like, oh, well, uh, you know, with that said, there's nothing in the olds that says I can't deputize someone in cases of uh, extreme weather or other emergency. And, well, there's a lot of letters to deliver this week. So I would certainly say the work workforce is understaffed to meet demand. Of course. And Lord Smythe offers a handshake with the bill it palmed. She shrugs and she moves to hand it to you, but she pauses at the last moment, frowning as she peers in Bonnie's direction. Just a second. Hmm? You sure she ain't gonna steal it? I see that neck. I see all those talismans and jewelry around her neck and uh, she looks like a male thief if I ever saw one. I assure you, they shall not leave my possession until such time as they reach the room. What do you want with 
Mike Kelso anyway. What's your stake in this whole missing kids thing? Basic morals? Uh, you'll find that they are my assistants. I'm under the uh, direct uh, orders of the police chief and also the uh, client who is being directly affected by the crime. I can't do everything myself, so they are assisting me in a very, very official capacity. Well, sure, only she's dressed like a carnival fortune teller. Yes, and you look like a male woman. What's your point? She shrugs. She hands the letter to Smythe and she says, I don't want to hear any more about this letter. Just don't open it. Of course, that would be a crime. Shall we return to the vehicle and proceed to deliver it? Yes, so. Now remember, I pride myself on my service, she says, calling out at you as you turn your backs and start to trudge back towards the car parked in the vacant lot. You'll deliver that within the hour, you hear? No gallivanting around. Expedience would be our purview, madame. If it goes missing, I'm gonna tell the federal agents that it was a, a carnival fortune teller and a guy wrapped in bandages. Good day. Baxter slams the door on the way out. His mental wearing off a bit. As soon as Boothby's out of sight, he gives her the finger. <laughs> she doesn't notice as she slides the, pa the, the sack over her shoulder and sort of buckles under its weight and shuffles around the corner of the building and out of sight the moment your backs are turned. Fucking spinsters. <laughs> yeah, and Connie was thinking of sleight of hand stealing the letter from her anyway, so she <laughs> wants to be a male feature. She's 100% right. Yeah. <laughs> it was an idea, idea if you hadn't tried to bribe her, I was just going to like do some ploy or whatever and just like, oh, take her hands and then just like swap the letter with a bit of paper or something. <laughs> that would have been awesome too. Well, ah, ah, yeah. well. <laughs> You converge around the Morris motor and Colin looks up from the tattered paperback he's reading. You can't see the cover, but there's a picture of a scantily clad woman swooning in the hands of a man beating crabs away with a stick. And he says, he says, ah, you're back, sir. You find what you're looking for? That's the wrong answer. Not yet, but a, <laughs> a step along the way. Colin, do give me the key to the trunk. Innsmouth got him already. Yep. <laughs> He's possessed. Key, key to the trunk, okay. Shorting, he says, as he he jingles the key ring and slides it from around, pulls it up from around his neck and hands it to you. Wear him around my neck, I do, because I, I guard him with me life, just like you said. I know how hard it is to find a good locksmith when you need one. Good man. Especially for an auto like this. And Lord Smythe opens the trunk and extracts a long carrying case. Smooth oaken wood with what looked like 
Bun and symbols engraved on it. And then, then he clambers up to take his seat in, seat in the car and uh, drive toward the Kelso estate, if you would, but stop about five minutes back from the house. I Ooh. believe you want to go on foot. Says Colin, suddenly excited, eyeing the long carrying case in your hands. Haven't seen you bring that one out for a while, my lord. If we're lucky, it shan't be needed. Oh, I bet I would uh, hear the gunfire from Arkham if I went back there. <laughs> Hopefully it shan't be needed. Also, we've got accelerants and fire starters, lanterns for the cave. Can anyone think of anything else we require? Don't suppose the car has enough gasoline. We should be fine on petrol, though. Uh... I filled her up before we left Arkham, sir. Colin is very conscientious. Oh, here's the letter you can read as we go, I suppose. And he passes it over to whoever wants it. Luthby snatches it out of spite and immediately whips the envelope open. As you rip it open, Colin just raises a hand. He says, I... Sir... I'm not really up on my uh, American laws, but isn't that some sort of crime? Look, but if you don't say anything, I'll give you some of my new books for free. Consider me satisfied, he says, and he busies himself getting the engine started and eventually the car roars to life and he reverses out onto the cobblestone street and begins whistling jovially as he carries you down the main street of Falcon Point towards Innsmouth Road. All damnation's a criminal state anyway. What's one more? So Boothby tears open the envelope and unfolds it. And the first thing you see, Boothby, scribbled on the piece of paper, quite hastily by the look of it, is a series of seemingly meaningless letters and numbers. A cipher. <laughs> quite obvious that it's encoded. He passes the letter over to Connie and goes, this seems like the kind of I don't know, hoodoo shit you'd know about. Uh, I can certainly give it a look. Peer down at the letter, Connie. It's obvious that there's some meaning here, but to the naked eye, to someone who just read this letter without any context, the numbers and letters mean nothing. However, given that it was written quite hastily, you don't suspect the cipher to be that advanced. And so if you'd like to try and decipher it, you may make either a hard intelligence check, or you may make an occult check. Yeah. Let's try the intelligence check. Mm. 
So a hard so a hard it's check half. means I have to get half under my score, half. isn't it? Yep, under yeah. half. Uh Yeah. Uh, Alright, so I'm going to burn 11 luck to drop the to a 40, which makes it just a success. Mm. So it's a fairly simple cipher. You've used it yourself in a past life. Before you, <laughs> before you were a psychic slash occultist, you engaged in a different type of griff and it involved sending a lot of coded letters to people to your accomplices that you didn't want falling into the wrong hands the cipher that's being used is similar to the one you used to use and you notice what you think is the pattern quite quickly and begin whispering to yourself as you scroll down the translation on the piece of paper. And as you hand it back to Boothby, I would like Connie and Boothby to both make sand checks for me, please. Oh god. Oh dang it. I will remind you as you make sand checks that if you want to guarantee that you pass the sand check, you can always project your sand loss onto a bond. Hmm. James Bond. <laughs> He's still not around yet. <laughs> no, no. What? Him? No, we're talking about John Fleming. Totally different guy. Of course, yeah. Brian Fleming. Uh, Brian Fleming, there you go. So. I failed. Uh, and you're, I you're going by current sanity, aren't you? Yeah, current sanity. Certainly, yeah. no chance. I like yeah. to think that um, Boothby failing the sand check, he accidentally sees the spoiler to his own uh, <laughs> conclusion to the, to the conclusion of the Detective Phillips franchise, and he goes temporarily oh. insane. Oh, fuck. She's a woman now. Is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, this about eggs? A fail. <laughs> there's a fail? So, you yeah. both lose 1d3 sand. As the first things you see, as the first things you see are your full names, Kenneth Boothby, and the next name, the next name is not Connie, because that's not your real name, and that's why it's so unsettling. The name that's listed here is not the one that anyone currently knows you by. Followed by the full names of Ruth, Baxter, and Lord Smythe. Simple order is attached. Let them be sacrifices for Lord Dagon. I can't tell you how glad we are that we... How glad I am that we found this before it uh, made it into Snowden's hands. Seems to me like they won't uh, won't see us coming. Hmm. You're very, very lucky. So this uh, Dagon guy. Anyone know anything about this name? 
a god, an old one. You may all, in fact, at this, roll either Cthulhu Mythos or a cult. Lord Smythe will simply say what he knows. A god, an old, old one. one. <laughs> but <He's> not wrong. <laughs> some, but there's evidently quite a lot of folks who believe that he is still worth killing for. They very badly failed that. Yeah, no success from Baxter either. And Ruth? No. <laughs> yeah. You're not expected to pass. Nope. The name has an ominous ring to it, but all you know, all you know now is that you're dealing with some dangerous people not to be trifled with, and you've seen enough to know that you should expect the unexpected. And so you fold the letter up, slide it back into the envelope, and hand it to Colin. He pulls open a small compartment under the steering wheel and slides it away, hidden. And then he continues whistling jovially as the car makes its way down Innsmouth Road, a muddy dirt track, vibrating like you're on some sort of carnival ride as it seems to hit every pothole on the way. Sorry, sir, Colin calls out. It's not very good terrain, but oh, there's another one and thump, thump. Thump, thump. So the Baxter over... holds yep. in a yelp. <laughs> yeah. His poor as, bones. As, yeah, his poor bones wincing in pain with each wow. jolt. Each we only jolt have to get car makes. So, so could... Baxter. Yep. What's the play? Do we try words first? Yeah, what is the play? Probably a good idea to figure that out. Uh, Axel holds up a finger for a moment as Colin goes over another pothole. He notices the road ahead is a little bit calmer for just a little bit longer. Hey, Mr. Baxter, look, it evens out a bit before that next hill, at least. <laughs> he breathes out, he breathes in. Right. Yes. The job at hand. Yes. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd prefer not to go in guns blazing if that's what you're implying. Words first. Please, no more violence, if possible. And do we and do we approach openly or stealthily? Since we've intercepted the letter, openly is probably my suggestion. But I'll defer to you for this one. I think. Well, they uh, clearly know who we are, so I feel like trying to play dumb isn't gonna work yeah. that well. Or do they? That's the question. Mm. Our names are in this letter. I have no... I do not know if this man knows our name. Hither to this letter. Perhaps not. Mm. Doesn't seem to be any point concealing our identities, then. Well, at the very least, if they do know who we are, at least they haven't received the kill order yet. I mean, we might be able to get somewhere playing dumb. If they think we're that dumb. <laughs> Alright then. Why are we calling upon them? Why are we calling upon Mr. Kelso? Well, uh... 
you know, we could be looking to put in a booth piece, but uh, considering what people said about how they feel about the business, I think that might lead to violence faster than if we brought up the kidnapping thing. Connie, do you have any suggestions? Well... Hmm. I mean, it might be a stretch, but we could always... If we have Booth be hanging, hanging back a bit so we don't see him, but we could be... Have you or someone pretend to be looking to buy some farmland up this way. an entirely accomplished liar, but we could attempt that. We do have a letter addressed to him. The contents of the letter need not be the same. That uh, I was thinking along those lines. And actually, yes, is anyone good at faking a hand? Uh, what would the role for that be? Hmm. hmm. I would say... I was, I was going to say Ruth, but yeah. I would say, actually, uh, Art Craft. Then, uh, let's see. Actually, that would probably be... Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I've got Art Craft 80, if you, if yeah. you can yeah. acting. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, would yeah say, I would say part <laughs> of that yeah. would include uh, subtly, you know, changing your hand to... That was awesome. yeah. We have a slight problem in that uh, the letter was cruelly ripped open, but a new envelope can be procured. And the stamp transferred. Though I doubt he'll look at it that closely. And we have cracked the cipher, so in it, perhaps you should. We could stop here and you could print out something in that hand that says These are potential recruits. Show them the majesty of Dagon. I like your style. You're very devious, sir, says Colin. That's why we're still alive, Colin. That's why we're still alive. You hand Ruth a blank piece of paper and a pen, and she gets to work. And Ruth, I'd like you to make an art craft roll. Yeah, sure. Uh, oh, God, if this fails. <laughs> okay, it's a pass. It's a pass. It's a bit hard with the car bumping up and down, but you've trained yourself to keep a steady, precise hand. This was part of your general acting training. Your trainer, of course, being one of the very first method actors of this age, was all for getting entirely into character. Part of that meaning to transform yourself into that person, including mimicking their manner of writing. So you've managed to construct the message that Lord Smythe tells you to, and when you look between your forgery and the original letter, you can tell the difference, but it would take very close scrutiny. Meanwhile, Lord Smythe is getting to work carefully, carefully transporting the postmark onto a new envelope. And 
By the time you hand the letter to him and he slides it into the envelope, it looks as if you've got a letter fresh from the postmaster's sack. Won't hold up to forensic scrutiny, but then, well, I doubt it. Pass at a glance. Whoa, oh, we're here! Sirs, ma'ams, shouts Colin as he stops the car perhaps a bit too abruptly. The Morris shudders and you're all thrown forwards and Baxter, your entire rib flares up instantly in excruciating pain as you're jolted in the back seat, thrust against the side of the car door. In a flash of pain, Baxter remembers the bottle of medication he left on his hospital bedside. Yeah, wishing he had it with him. Sorry, says Colin yet again. I just noticed I had to stop because look! He points out just ahead of you, and at the end of the dirt road, you can see a driveway leading up and over a hill, identified as the entrance of the Calso farm by an old mailbox mounted atop a fence post. The farm cannot be seen from the road where you are, save for the roof of a, var of a barn peeking over the intervening hilltop. Go on foot from here, sir, suggests Colin. It would be best. Lord Smythe takes a look at that barn and the perfect vantage point for the uh, house and looks over the others. I don't suppose you want me covering you from up there. Or should you want me going in? What's the call, Mr. Baxter? Not sure how many shots you're going to get off from a barn across into a enclosed building, but... And it is true, we are going into a cave if things work well. I should probably go with you then. It seems pertinent. Very well. He slides the case onto his back and takes the cane and hobbles after the group. Happy hunting, says Colin. I'll keep the engine warm, okay? Do not trust this guy. That's a good idea. I trust him with my life, sir. Once that appears shot, Baxter remarks, please <laughs> depart that man. <laughs> oh my God. With all due respect, shove it up your ass. And as you begin... Yep, Boothby. No, uh, Boothby was just going to say that we should really get a move on. I don't want yeah. some kid to die because we're arguing over a chip over there. Yeah, probably fair. And so you take one last glance at Colin. Boyish grin on his face as he watches Smythe sling the rifle-carrying case over his shoulder, perhaps relishing the chance to hear the gunshot ringing out, booming through the quiet countryside at some point in the near future. And then you begin to make your way down the driveway, up the hill, and towards what awaits. You make your way up the driveway that leads to the Kelso farm, and cresting the hill, you see below you a farmyard and some pastures surrounded by low stone walls. A prim farmhouse stands near a large barn, a moss-covered wellhouse, and a leaning chicken coop. A large vegetable garden is planted behind the house, and... 
a dust and dirt spattered black Ford Model A truck is parked in the yard between the farmhouse and the leaning chicken coop. Several dozen chickens can be seen roaming around the farmyard, pecking absent-mindedly at the dirt and the muck. Less than a half mile to the north, you could just make out the ocean and Boynton Beach, but it's impossible to see if there's anything on the edge of the beach itself, as... There's a thick wood just behind the farmhouse and the gnarled, uncharacteristically tight tree line obscures anything on the beach itself from view. An overgrown two-track road runs from the back of the farmhouse to the tree line. So far, it appears nobody has noticed your arrival. The farmyard is empty save for the chickens, and the blinds are drawn on all of the farmhouse windows. Well, wants to know. Do you Does want to appear? knock on the door? Does it appear there's any lights on inside anywhere? Um, well, it's about, you know, one in the afternoon, so... Oh, sorry, I thought it was much yeah, later. It's not, not night time. Um, so, no one would have lights on, but I think what you're asking, are there any signs of life? And... With the blinds that is the appropriate being, question. Yeah. With the blinds being drawn on all the windows, it's hard to tell, but there is a chimney poking out from the back of the farmhouse, just visible over the roof, and you can see a single plume of smoke rising from the chimney's mouth. Look, frankly, I think if anybody should be knocking on the door, it's Boothby. Seem to be able to bullshit your way in anywhere. Oh, and Boothly be the um, envelope. We were told to give right. you this. That's what go. you're going to tell them. We were told to give you this. Yeah. Uh, so you're just gonna collapse on the door. Yeah. As you approach the farmhouse, the chickens around. As you step into the farmyard and approach the house, the chickens begin to stir themselves into a frenzy, loudly cucking, loudly cucking, loudly clucking, <laughs> yeah, they're not, they're not those kinds of chickens, loudly <laughs> clucking and screeching as they run around you, pecking around at your feet, thinking you're about to throw food to them, and they make such a noise that you don't even have to announce your presence. There's a small wooden gate sealing, blocking the chickens off from the farmhouse itself. And as you approach it, you see a tall, lanky man in coveralls step off the front porch and begin to make his way towards the gate to meet you. He waves, smiling pleasantly. Oh, howdy! Out of towners, ah! 
You need directions? Ran out of gas? I can help, I can help you if I can. Just tell me what you need. Luthby holds up the letter and says, we got, uh, got some mail for you. Oh! The man frowns. Normally it's Abby brings the letters up. What, she deputized you or something? This was, uh, important enough to hand deliver. He reaches over and takes the letter. He brings it up to his face and peers down at it, studying it, flipping it upside down. Eventually he shrugs. He peels it open, unfolds the letter and silently reads it. Well, how about that? He smiles. He slides the letter into one of the pockets on his denim coveralls and... Then he looks over his shoulder and calls, Honey, we've got guests! He reaches over, unlatches the gate, pushes it open, and as it creaks open, he steps aside, gesturing towards the house. And he says, Please, please, we've been invest- we, We've been expecting you. Uh, you want some refreshment? We got coffee, we got lemonade, uh, my wife Sarah's got a pot roast on, and uh, we'd be happy to have you for dinner. Good. We were told that you have answers for us, so dinner's bonus and extra on top. I'm quite famished. You make your way past the gate and towards the front patio. He holds out his hand. He says, I'm, uh, I'm Mike Kelso, by the way, and this is my farm. And that's my wife, Sarah. He points to the front door, which is pushed open as a homely-looking woman wearing a long green apron stands in the doorway, smiling kindly at you. Oh, Harold Smythe. Pleased to meet you. He offers his hand to Ruth next. As she, she extends it, just sort of silently. He shakes it, and then offers it to Baxter. Uh, Baxter takes it, um, trying to make it obvious that there is, um, <laughs> like a splint, <laughs> and to not squeeze too hard. Finally, he shakes Connie's hand, and then, as he ushers you all up onto the front patio, he sm looks over at Boothby and smiles, and he says, No need to introduce yourself. I'd recognize that smile, that those eyes anywhere. You're a Boothby. And I'll tell you what, everyone in this town, well, they'd sooner see the back of you than speak to you, but... Your dad's been kind to me, and, uh, well, it's thanks to him that, uh, and the deal we got going that this farm's been able to stay open over the last few seasons. Deal? I didn't know about any deal. No, he says, raising an eyebrow. Why, uh, you saw the, uh, the chicken coop out the front there, uh, Got a deal with your dad that, uh, all the eggs and chicken meat in that store you got up in Arkham, well, I'm one of the suppliers. Oh, that deal. I know exactly what you're talking about. 
I appreciate your dedication to the Boothby chain. And let me tell you, he says, slapping a hand on your shoulder as if you're old buddies, having someone of uh, your caliber and standing uh, as a friend will mean only good things. That is, uh, if the letter speaks true. Boothby <laughs> winks and goes, uh, well, you know, I'm always looking to expand into new ventures, and this seems like quite a, uh, interesting one. Make a fast talk check, please, Boothby. Uh, 65 against 70. He nods. Oh, I think this, you'll find this venture very worthwhile, but look, uh, you've come a long way. Uh, Sarah's got the pot roast going. Let's get your bellies full, and uh, we'll uh, talk about how I can help you. He leads you into the farmhouse, through a narrow entrance hall, past a lounge room, and into a rather homely kitchen. It's the sort of place that you'd expect to see on a postcard, a small-town, all-American kitchen. You'd almost expect to see a pie drying on a windowsill. The smell of cooking... The smell of cooking stew fills your nose as the aroma of spiced meat, herbs, and someone who knows what they're doing. The smell of friendly, home-cooked bliss instantly sets you at ease as you're directed to sit down at the table, complete with a red White and red polka dot tablecloth. It's a stereotypical American farmhouse. And as Sarah busies herself over the stove, humming as she stirs the huge metal pot that's bubbling away, Mike heads over to the fridge, uh, heads over to the refrigerator a brand new refrigerator that looks distinctly upmarket for who presents himself as a simple farmer he produces a glass jug of fresh lemonade and pours you each a glass and then takes his seat at the table with you so which neck of the woods you which neck of the woods you've come all the way from, friends? He says. He asks, taking a sip of his lemonade. Letting out a contented sigh as he swallows it down. Ah, it's the spot. He is going to, like, without being rude... Try to look at the meat inside of the stew and see if he can identify it. Hmm. So, as you 
get up as you before you sit down you sort of head up to the stove where Sarah is and just try to peer over her shoulder looking into the pot. Oh, eager are you? Oh, don't worry, it'll be ready soon, she says, as she sort of playfully pushes you away. The meat in the pot has the consistency and colour of chicken, but with only a few snatched glances of it, you're unable to tell for sure. Please, drink up, says Kelso, calling you over and pointing at the glass of lemonade. You've come a long way. From where? If you don't mind me asking. Letter didn't say. Arkham. Arkham. Interesting. Ah. Never been there myself. But, uh, I hear it's growing by the day, and, uh, Certainly, out of the ordinary, that Sarah and I would be graced with visitors from such a bustling place, you know. I'm surprised myself, to be honest. This was not entirely what I was expecting. But then the most, but then most offers of investments and acquaintances aren't backed by gold of the quality that we saw. There's an eyebrow at this. He takes another swig of lemonade and he says, uh, So, uh, I'm gonna ask, uh, your names are in that letter and, uh, look, I know it's a crime to open mail and stuff, so I don't expect you to know exactly what was in there, but, uh, you've been sent this way for a reason, I take it, and, uh, you're alluding that you know more than you let on, so I'm gonna just come straight out and say it. Are you looking to get involved with, uh, Father Snowden and, and, and his business? We may be. However, there were certain inferences made that are rather difficult to believe. Outlandish, even. I had told the man we would require proof before any final commitments could be made, any resources could, could be allocated. Proof, huh? Well, look, all I can tell you is... Uh... Me and Sarah, we ain't involved ourselves, right, hon? He says. Of course, honey, says Sarah as she sticks a wooden spoon into the pot. Brings it to her lips and taste tests the stew. Oh, a bit more salt, she whispers as she reaches for a salt shaker. All I know is that, uh, Father Snowden's, uh... Doing something that he doesn't want a lot of people to ask questions about, and my farm happens to be out of the way. He gives us a payment every month, and, uh, when he receives- when someone wants to send him letters, they send them to me. I pass them on to him, and I'm supposed to, uh, store some things for him when he's not here, but- 
Aside from that, the arrangement doesn't involve me or Sarah directly, so when you're talking about proof and things like that, I gotta ask what you're talking about. Well, uh, you know, this, uh, Dagon stuff, it's just all a little bit, uh, it yeah. sounds like bunk. And yet bunk is not usually backed by gold of this caliber. Or the Dagon? Dealings. Dagon? Gold? Look, buddy, uh, all the letter says is uh, that you're potential recruits, whatever that means. That means Snowden's got his eye on you, but when you're spouting off things like Dagon and gold, look... That's beyond me, he says. He drains the last of his lemonade, slams the empty glass on the table. He says, I'm just supposed to receive the letters, keep an eye on the stuff, and pass it along. Hell, this would be the first time any, uh, recruits have been sent my way. Uh, I figured uh, Snowden and his ilk would have ways of, uh, contacting, uh, your kind directly, if you know what I mean. Are you not familiar with any other uh, recruits? He looks over at Ruth, and he's silent for a moment, not sure what to say, and he says, uh, well, I say recruits, truth is, I uh, don't really know for sure. Uh, I mean, he brought in those guys, Castle and Talamentes. They're apparently working for him now. Only I had nothing to do with that. All I know is that one day they showed up and Snowden said I was to point them in the right direction. And look, I, I don't ask questions. The guy pays me well enough. Gold bullion, if you'll believe it. And uh, I'm not about to jeopardize... Uh, the arrangement. You basically him in gold bullion? I Indeed. You didn't know anything about gold. Ah, well. See, I might have run my mouth a bit much. Uh, look, I don't know where the gold comes from. All I know is that he's got a lot of it. He said there's more where that came from, and I can have as much of it as I want so long as... He gets to use my farm for whatever he wants to use it for. When you said that you pointed Castle and Telementes in the right direction, what do you mean by that? I can only infer that that's exactly what uh, Father Snowden wants of us as well. Perhaps we're not to take it up with you. Perhaps you are to be our guy. I don't know the exact details, man. He was too cagey. What I don't understand, he says, frowning, is why it would be in the letter addressed to me. Okay, look, maybe I'm supposed to point you in the right direction, in which case I can tell you where you need to go, but when you're talking about proof and Dagon and needing to see proof to make the right choice, I can't help you with that. My wife and here live a quiet life, and... We don't have anything to do with anything that's, uh, against the law. This so you don't know like... anything about any other recruits or anything like that? Aside from Castle and Talamentes, uh, 
No, can't say I do, and, uh... Tell you what. He folds his arms. You're asking a hell of a lot of questions for people who, uh... Apparently knew to come here and knew what you were expecting. I uh, just... He's, he's a little, uh... He's a little vague, and I guess I'm just curious as to why, uh, why we were, uh, considered prospective candidates. He shrugs. Well, uh, look, I wouldn't know anything about that. As I say, you know, I'm just the middleman. But, if you've been told to come here, then I'm expecting maybe, uh, Mr. Snowden will know what to do next, so, uh, Let's just get some dinner in you. You've obviously come a long way, and uh, I'm sure the man will make himself known. All right. We can wait a bit. Lord Smythe consults his watch. I'm still not convinced this isn't a wild goose chase. Well, dinner, and then you can take us to him. Should be ready in about 20 minutes, says Sarah. I just gotta let it simmer a bit more. Please, you've come all this way, says Jack. At least have a bowl of stew before I send you on your way. I don't know what Snowden's got in mind for you, but uh, when Castle and Talamentes showed up, he put them to work straight away. Work. Hold on, one more question. You said that you had uh, things you were keeping for Mr. Snowden. What kind of things are we talking about? Oh, you know, personal effects. He's got this trunk. As I understand it, he's got a house up in Innsmouth. But, uh, he needs ready access to uh, some of the materials for the things he does here. So he's got a trunk that, uh, he stows away in the spare room upstairs. I ain't ever looked through it. I'm paid to just keep the thing there, make sure nobody steals it, you know. I suppose that's all you can tell us about that, then. That's fair enough. Baxter mentally makes a note that he would like to <laughs> investigate that when he's not looking. Yeah, but now's not, not looking. the time. Now's not the time. So, as you... As you... Slowly nurse your lemonades and engage Jack Kelso in small talk, I'd like everybody present to make a spot hidden check mm -hmm. I had a feeling oh I pass hard pass hard pass spot hidden. I don't great. I fail by two Baxter you get a bonus die on this and I'll explain why when I tell you what you see Actually, you know oh. what? I've got three luck left. I'll pay two to make it a success. Yep. You have three luck left. Lord Smythe yeah. is not a lucky man. Oh, no, he's going to fuck. Yeah, that is not a I, good sign. Um, I, have, a regular I have one luck left after decoding that letter. But I have I have 63. <laughs> yeah, I've got 43. 50, buddy. Luck is not a <laughs> so I use it when I can. Mm. Uh, yeah, Baxter gets just a regular pass. Regular pass. Uh, same for Connie. Right, same for Connie. Oh. Well. Yeah, so that's enough passes to get the group pass. And Baxter, the reason you got a bonus die is because as you engage 
Mr. Kelso in small talk and he does his very best show of presenting himself as a friendly farmer, giving you refreshments after you've come a long way, making you feel at ease. You notice that there are things that imply that children are living in this house. Breakables mm. kept above a certain height. What looks like a uh, child gate on the stairs out in the hallway. Small cutlery in the sink. Tiny plate and bowls and cups shoved away in one of the cupboards. Yeah, Bax is all too familiar with that. B kind of uh, polishes off his lemonade. It's like, uh, you know, uh, it, it's been kind of a long drive up here. Uh, do, you, do you think you could point me to where the bathroom is? Bathroom? Uh, sure. Uh, uh, head out back to the hallway you came through, right down, and it's on the left there. Uh, careful, uh, when you flush it, it gets stuck. You might have to pull the chain a few times. He smiles. Wait. Um, Boothby goes back into that hallway. I would there be stairs there to go up to the. There are. As you exit the kitchen, you see the stairs leading up to the second floor, complete with the small wooden gate, the kind that you'd use to keep a wayward toddler from barreling up the stairs. And Boothby just step over that. Yeah, you just climb over it and make your way upstairs. Well, Boothby's going to have a little poke around in that trunk. Yeah. So at the top of the stairs, you find yourself in a hallway that is lined with bedrooms. The bedroom at the very end is obviously the master bedroom. The door is open, and peering through it, you can see a four-poster bed with a lavish purple bedspread. The door closest to you appears to be the spare room. It's slightly ajar, and inside you can see a spartanly furnished bedroom, a single bed and a chest of drawers, and, as Kelso described, a wooden trunk wedged between the bed head and the wall. The third door is shut. Trunk first, and mm. then possibly that closed door. Closed door. While Boothby ducks out and the rest of you are left in the kitchen, do any of you mention the fact that this house seems childproofed? Yeah, Bax is going to uh, kind of bring it up, not, but not in a pointed way. So I... Uh, I've got kids of my own, and I can't help but notice that they're uh, not at the table with us. That It seems like, uh, you know, you have some of your own. Kids? Uh, oh, right. It takes a father, takes a father to know. He gestures over at the little little forks lying in the sink. He says, oh, right. Uh, yeah, uh, Sarah's niece and nephew, uh four and six years old. They were visiting last week. <laughs> we still haven't fully cleaned up yet. You know, kids, they'll make a... They'll make the hugest mess you ever saw. Don't tell me about it. Bath time is the worst as well. 
Oh, definitely bath time. He nervously chuckles as he Lovely of you to away. keep uh, child cutlery just for when they visit. Ah, you know, it's easier to just keep some just in case uh, rather than, you know, rather than trying to make them make do with what we have. That's awful considerate. Well, you know, Sarah's only got the one sister. And, you know, we can't, you know, we don't have kids of our own. You got to spread the love somehow. <laughs> Bruce, what is your psychology? Uh, it is 85. Yeah. Without rolling, I'll tell you, it's very blatantly obvious to you that Mike Calso is trying to deflect. Uh, she probably shoots Baxter a look. So you have no need for children of your own. Oh, well, uh, look, it's, uh, we're not exactly the children type, uh. Then perhaps, mm. perhaps I'm talking to the wrong person. Maybe that my services are not needed after all. Services? I, I, I'm sorry, he says, shaking his head. Well, when one is used to delivering products to various places, and is contacted by a man in need of product, one assumes that product delivery is required. But you're evidently not in the market. My bad. My apologies. I seem to have wasted your time. Well, uh, that... What's down the lemonade? That is Damn. to say, if, if you're peddling things for children, uh, if you were here earlier in the week, uh... You may have found, uh, sorry, I've said too much, uh. As have uh, I, I believe. Shall we depart? Depart? He says, I I thought you were waiting for me to point you to. It appears that we were misled on the business that you are. In, as it were. And what business would, would that be? If you don't mind me asking. Should we put our cards on the table? Lord Smythe flicks his eyes to Boothby. Tell him about the trafficking. Well, well Boothby's upstairs. Sorry, he flicks his eyes over to over to Connie. Should we tell him about the trade? Or should we cover our tracks? What, what's your feel on this one? Lord Smythe asks as he quietly pulls out a revolver. What's your feel on this one? Legit or we were trapped? <laughs> Are we talking to a <laughs> fucking fed? <laughs> Go ahead and make an intimidate check for me. I don't think it's a fed. <laughs> And Tommy, I'd like you to go ahead and make me a fast talk check to go along with this facade. 95. Yeah. I'm not doing a good job at intimidating. Would you like to push that? Mm. I believe I would because I've had the feeling I might have to shoot this man anyway. <laughs> that was a fast talk. Oh, it's a failure, but not as bad as a 95. How does Connie's fast talk go? Uh, 
Oh, 16 was almost a crit, but it's just a hard a hard pass. Mm. Hard pass? I'll say that will... You can change that hard pass into a regular pass for Smythe, if you like. Please do. Uh, yeah. So, before I describe what happens, I'll get back to Boothby. Boothby, yeah. you creep into the spare room, make your way to the wooden trunk, and as you go to open it, you find, of course, that it's locked. If this is Snowden's trunk, with his personal effects, indeed, he doesn't even trust Kelso not to look at them. Hmm. Is it a combination or a key? Like a key, from what you can tell. You can see a single keyhole. There's right. nothing indicating it's more complicated than that. Hmm. No, what what skill would be used for lock picking? Hmm. If you want to lock pick it, it uh, would be locksmith. Yeah. Um. How many points in that? That might I be. I will allow you. If you so it'd just be one percent if you have no points in it. But I will allow right. you to make a hard dex check to see if you can force the lock, but do it in such a way that it's not, like, doesn't make a huge noise. Like, maybe you can force the lock in such a way that it just springs open instead of, you know, smashing through the wood. Let's try that. Yeah, go ahead, make a hard dex check. That was not at all passing. Um... Hey. Let me do some quick math. Uh, this is such a bad idea. I'm going to spend 46 luck. 46 luck! <laughs> to get this down to a hard pass. You place your hands on the lid of the trunk and jiggle it, pushing it back and forth and praying that somehow you can get it open. Finally, you hear a click, and you sigh in relief as the trunk springs open. Inside, you find a most curious assortment of objects. A thick, leather-bound tome, several sets of folded black priests, robes, a series of small crystal vials containing what appears at first glance to be murky water, and a violin case, Alfredo's violin case. Still damp blood fleck on the very edges of the handle. Well, uh, he's gonna take note of that and then look at the home, see if he can open that and flip through yeah. it. Yeah, flips open. I'd like you to go ahead and make me a own language check, please. 
to pass it. It's very thick, and almost every page of it is filled. It appears to be a diary. A diary going back at least a decade. There's a lot of information in here. The writing is very densely packed, very messy. Okay, I failed, pushed, and then got a critical success. Lovely. So you flip through it, all too aware of the fact that they'll be expecting you back downstairs at any moment. So you flip to the very back of the book and start reading backwards. The latest entry appears to be from a few days ago, perhaps no more than a week ago. And I'm going to put it up in our bear rodeo. It reads, Today marks the 25th year since I entered into the service of Lord Dagon. On this momentous occasion, I find myself deigning to reflect on what has led to this moment, to create a tangible record of my faith. I was a young man of 20 years when I first experienced the kinship of Dagon's children. Newly graduated from the priest's college, the Christian Lord saw fit to end my life when my fishing boat floundered off the Innsmouth coast. Yet the children of Dagon saved me, and on that day I exchanged my faith in the Lord for faith in another. It has been my life's mission since then to bridge the gap between our kind and theirs. If only we could learn to see past our instinctual revulsion, we would find that we are all worthy of Lord Dagon's love. Whether born of the ocean or no, to this day it saddens me to admit that most humans would never understand this fact, simply because the children of Dagon are different. As I devoted myself to teaching my kind the spirit of mutual cooperation, I came to learn that prejudices grow stronger with age. In that case then, to set my sights on a more achievable task, where adults are beyond hope, children may yet learn to embrace what is different. Those prejudices can be destroyed before they fully form. It was to this end that I sought to free children from the indoctrination of our society, to show them that friendships are not bound by such notions as race. While our kind, who do not carry the blood of Dagon's children, will never change as those who return to the ocean, through understanding we can still become something more than human. My early experiments in Arkham were perhaps ill-advised, undertaken far from the guiding eye of the Order of Dagon. Indeed, I found myself disgraced in that town before too long, forced to flee. I made it appear to them that I had taken my own life, but in reality, Dagon's children met me in the ocean to see my work continue. Boothby, I'd like you to make a sand check for me, please. Yeah. that rolled correctly uh i succeeded succeeded you lose one point of sen as you feel yourself involuntarily shiver understanding the implications of what is written in this diary that snowden means to take these children and force them to bond with something less than human. Mm. 
Boothby is going to just close the top of the case. Um, clearly bringing the stuff downstairs would be a pretty bad idea. Could probably gonna... sneak away with the tome, though. I'll take that, then. Yes. Yeah. It's just a, it's a book, so you can slide it into your coat, pull your coat around you, and prob people would probably notice you don't, probably not notice you have it with you, but you carefully close, replace all of the miscellaneous objects in the trunk, and pull it closed so that it looks to anyone who comes by as if it was never opened in the first place. And then you exit the room, holding the tome under your arm, concealed within the folds of your coat. Boothby's going to sneak into the bathroom and flush the toilet very quickly. Yeah, make his way downstairs. As you make your way downstairs, Boothby, I'd like you to make a spot-hidden check, please. Uh... Oh my god, um, 93 against 25, I'm not seeing anything. Yeah. You pass by a window that looks out onto the farmyard, but you're not paying attention. You don't notice a single figure creeping by underneath, sticking to the shadows around the base of the farmhouse. As you make your way quietly downstairs, pull the chain in the bathroom and the others hear the toilet flush. We make our way back to the others and as you hear the toilet flush, as Smythe brandishes the revolver, Jack Calso's eyes twist in concern. His wife looks over, very obviously worried. He raises a hand to calm her, and then he says, We're not feds. I swear we're not feds. But is it right to say you know about the kids? Would I be offering Snowden shiploads of Irish orphans who couldn't avoid Ellis Island if I didn't? Damn it, man! Either you're wasting time or you're tricking me. The revolver gets cocked. Or you're hiding something. Which is it? Okay, look. I'll be straight with you. When I said I'm paid to store some stuff, well, occasionally Castle and Talamentes bring kids. I don't ask where <sighs> they came from. I don't ask where they're going. But they stay in the room upstairs, set up just for them. And then, when Snowden comes down from Innsmouth, he takes them down to the beach. Right. Do you believe him? He asks the others. Do you believe him? Can I roll psych on that? Yeah. I gotta say, you don't look much like the baby-snatching type, Jack says. He looks over at Connie and Ruth in particular and frowns, and he says, I guess, I guess maybe kids will go with a broad, I don't know. Looks like, You don't look like the child-harboring type either, but we're all a bit uh, different for our appearances, look, aren't we? man, Snowden promised gold, and he promised... 
that he had something, some assurance that your local equivalent of the law wouldn't catch wind of this. Seemed to think it was a joke, anyway. Kept referring to answering to Dagon. Who's Dagon? He's no boss back in Arkham, that's for sure. Look, I still don't know nothing about Dagon, he says, holding up his <sighs> hand. But I can tell you, if you know about the kids, and I swear while they're living here, we treat them as if they're our own. But if you know about the kids, then you're obviously in league with Snowden. And I was supposed to point you to the beach house, you know, you head outside, right. trail through the woods, it'll take you down the cliff to Boynton Beach, but you know about the kids, so look, don't take the trail. Because he's got Talamentes standing there waiting to rough up anyone who comes out of this place and looks suspicious. Talamentes. Castle and Talamentes. Castle, haven't seen Castle in a day now. It's unusual for him to be without Talamentes, but look, Snowden seems to think the jig is up. People are coming for him, and he gave Talamentes orders to hang around outside, and if anyone went through the trail to uh, rough him up. Now, if you know about the kids and you ain't here to dob us into the feds, then I think I can tell you about the secret passage, right? I'm listening. I'm still not convinced, though. Do you have any merchandise on hand at the minute? Well, they're all in the cave. That's the thing. There okay, was a baby brought in a week ago, a girl about five brought in after that. Hmm. Tell all you right. what. You down the hallway. That's more trouble. That's extra. Down the hallway, you said? Down the hallway, past the bathroom, like I told your friend Boothby. There's a door there leads down to the cellar, and when you're in the cellar, there's a wooden trap door. Open that, and there's a tunnel. Goes down to the beach. You'll come out right in front of the mouth of the cave. <sighs> See, now, wasn't that much yet fucking amateurs and uh Smythe holsters the revolver shall we I think I spent enough time uh chin wagging it's time for us to actually look into what we're here for wasting time better not be wasting my time talk talk so it's at this point that Boothby steps into the kitchen once again. And Boothby, you see Smythe brandishing his revolver and the two the two calsos pressed against the back of the kitchen, their hands raised. What's happened in the time it took me to go to the bathroom? What happened? You take too long to shit. I'll explain on the way. <laughs> What the actual fuck are you talking about? Come on, let's get this over with. I have business to finish. Uh, he angrily stomps toward the directions as given. <laughs> so, does everyone follow? Does everyone follow Smythe? Do you do anything with the Kelsos before you leave? Just leave them. Apologize for riling them up, leave them in their kitchen to enjoy their meal? Or are you paranoid enough that you want to restrain them? 
I think Boothby mm. is going to be like, look, I'm I'm sorry about him. He's a little bit, uh, and he, like, kind of gestures to his nose. You know, he, uh, he has a bit of an addiction. Point being, we can, uh, I can write you a very big check. So if you want to just forget all of this, we can, uh, act like this never happened. Make a credit writing check, please, Boothby. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've rolled below a 90 this entire session. Um, I'm gonna push that. Oh, Bruce B. <laughs> filing his credit check. Uh, <laughs> What's the world um, coming to? Daddy's money is getting a bit thin. <laughs> yeah, still failed. Still failed. You hand a check to Kelso. He takes it looks down at it and without saying anything simply nods you don't like the look in his eye though and as you turn your back from him you could feel him watching you as you step out of the kitchen following the others we'll see you hear him mutter mm-hmm. as you step out into the hallway he doesn't like my one dollar check that i gave him yeah What's more that he's just not impressed by your money at the moment. So, as you follow Smythe down the hallway, you pass the bathroom and sure enough, come to the door that leads into the cellar. Smythe grabs the handle and pulls the door open and it creaks loudly. As you pull it open, revealing on the other side a narrow concrete stairwell that descends steeply down into pitch black darkness. And at this point, he opens the case and takes out the 404 Nitro Express. Yeah, before... The goddamn elephant gun. Mm -hmm. And says, well, it couldn't bring the lantern, so I hope that some of you have torches, flashlights, and your Yankee parlance. Before we get too far down, but still, like, out of sight, or out of... Um, listening range of the Kelsos. Uh, Boothby's gonna lean in close and is like, okay. Um, so I think Alfredo's dead. And uh, we might be fucked. After you. Why don't you tell us this now? What? What was he gonna say it in front of the family up there? They'd already gun pointed at him. Come on, let's go. Can you all not do things something, subtly at all? Something tells me they might know more than they're letting on. Well, this could end poorly. Do we, I, mean, I think it's already done Do we want poorly. to deal with them before we go, then? I feel like with this new information, there's no other way about it, unless you want to wind up in a box somewhere. Mr. Look, Baxter, look, 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 I defer look. to your expertise. He says, I putting don't... the gun back in the case. I don't I think you, they like... know about this, because it was in a locked case up in that room, the upstairs room. It's entirely possible that they don't know anything about a murder. But, that being said, um, I don't think we're going to get out of this with blo- uh, without bloodshed. Yes. Alright, based on that new information, I agree. 
it's at this point that I reveal that when Alfredo decided to go and source dynamite, he decided mm. to roleplay this with me off camera in his own session. He went and spoke to Danny O'Bannon, as he had in the past, and Danny O'Bannon promptly said he doesn't touch explosive with explosives with a 10-foot pole, because that's too much heat, but that Sinetti might deal in something like that. Despite being warned not to deal with Sinetti, Alfredo reached out to him and arranged to have a handover in a secluded picnic spot about two hours out of Arkham in the wilds of the Miskatonic Valley. When he arrived, he was set upon by Sinetti's goons, including the muscle-bound kidnapper Castle. He managed to dispatch Castle in the ensuing struggle, but was overwhelmed. So, I'd like to ask a question. Who is the first person who's going to descend the staircase? Not me. Takes two hands to shoulder the rifle, and somebody needs to have a light. Yeah. Oh God, Boothby's gonna have to be the one that goes down first, isn't he? Yeah, he's got the got one of the lights you purchased at the general store. Yeah, Baxter's has... torn to shit and back, and uh, well, he's chauvinist, so he probably wouldn't let the women go first, would he? I mean, he's a chauvinist and also a coward, so those two are kind of battling right now. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, uh, I don't suppose Ruth or Connie wants to volunteer to go first? I was actually going to say Ruth might. Yeah. She's yeah. curious Baxter. at this point. Just curious. Baxter will roll his eyes at the two men and grab the ladder. So, Baxter... Making Baxter. sure he winces a little bit more loudly than he needs to. Ruth follows Baxter. behind. Baxter snatches the lantern from Boothby's hands, and he's the first to step out onto the stairwell. And as Baxter's shoe crunches on the concrete, you hear movement behind you. You all whirl around, peering down the hallway, and you see in the kitchen where you left him, Mike Kelso, with a smile on his face, raise a hand clench it into a fist and pull it back as if he's about to punch. So That's nice. If Baxter had not been wounded when checking the kidnapper's hideout and you'd had time to fully search for clues, you would have found the inscription telling you how to cast a spell entitled Fist of yog Sothoth, And you oh, would no, know... What's coming? Oh. <laughs> All right. Instead, I would like Baxter to go ahead and make a power check for me. Oh, that's not that's not menstrual. Okay, let's find out. Uh, that's a regular pass. Regular pass. Rolling for Kelso, he gets a hard pass, meaning he beats your opposed power roll. And as he clenches his fist and punches into the air, <clears throat> Baxter gasps as you feel a solid fist smash you in the lower back, causing you to 
lose your footing, sending you tumbling down the stairwell. You may make a con roll, if you like, to try to steady yourself as you feel this unseen force push you. Uh, that is actually a hard pass. Hard pass. I'm going to roll the strength. That is a normal success. You stumble, slip down about half the staircase, hearing a snap as you sprain your ankle and you take two points of damage, (laughs) but manage to prevent yourself from tumbling headfirst into the darkness. So, can I put a bullet in in the fellow's forehead? If you like, and if you're sure that all you... I will point out that you've seen the guy clench his fist and make a motion of punching in the air, and then you've Uh, seen Baxter supposedly stumble and trip. You could go out on a limb and say the two. You could be paranoid enough to assume the two are related, but... Even though I was leaning toward saying I'll bring up the rear and went going back to kill them, I think I'm going. I think I'm going to pass at the minute, and I'll point the gun at him again and say, "Why don't you come with us?" Make an intimidate check, please. I'm going to have to insist on this one. Boothby is also going to point his um, shotgun at. And that's a failure. Mm, But you can roll again because Boothby's pulled his gun out as well. Oh, boys, can you just settle down? Just ask him. She says surreptitiously. <laughs> In that case, I'll ask Booth. Uh, Ruth. Booth. I'll ask, I'll ask Ruth to make an appearance check, please. Well, that's a fail on the intimidate. That's a pass on the push. Pass on the push. Jack Calso holds up his hands once again. No need to worry about me, ma'am, he says. I won't make a move. Just watch out for your friend there. Uh, looks like he's still a bit, a little bit shaken up. Uh, careful, don't want to slip on those stairs. Hmm. She sort of narrows uh, her eyes at him but doesn't say anything. Baxter, you steady yourself, and the others are, where the others are looking at you, it seems obvious that you've slipped, lost your balance and fallen, but you swear, you swear, the moment he punched his fist into the air, something struck you in the lower back, pushed you, tried to send you to your death. Look, call me paranoid, but that man punched me. I don't know how he did it from over there, but he did it. Those pain pills hitting you? Uh, Baxter kind of stammers on his words for a second. Shuts his mouth. <laughs> Baxter, Maybe Snowden. Please. Maybe Snowden wasn't talking out of his ass entirely. Alright, get down there. I'll cover him on the way down. Make sure he doesn't try anything. Magician's foolery with wires or whatever. As as Ruth said, Baxter, please. Just now, she she sort of gave him a look of like I believe you. 
And I would like Baxter to make a stand check for me, please. Because... Uh, that is a failure, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that'll be a loss of 1d3. Although you can project onto your bonds if you like, remember? That's always an option. Uh, no, I still have plenty of sanity. Yeah. It's not 50, so I'll just take it. Because... As you lead the others down the stairwell, it doesn't happen again. And even though they protest, even though Smythe protests that this can't be the case, you... You know it happened. Somehow that man punched you, and the implications of that? Something is not right. Eventually, you reach the bottom of the stairwell, and the lantern in your hand illuminates the little cellar. It's almost empty, save for a wine rack pressed against one of the walls, with only a couple of bottles still in it. The wooden trap door is easy to find, right there in the centre of the room, a grey square cut into the cold earth. Wait for a moment, until finally, Smythe brings up the rear. The gigantic elephant gun still clasped in his hands. He had it pointed towards the kitchen, towards... Towards Calso. As you watched the others descend, Smythe. And the entire time he stood there, his hands raised. As unthreatening as possible. Finally, it was your turn. You watched him until you could physically see him no longer. And you joined the others in the basement, gathered around the single trap door. What now? Well, I do hope one of you has brought a light source. Yep, Baxter's got it. Yeah, Baxter's got the flashlight. Guess he'll wrench open the trap door as well. Yeah. Reach down, grab the iron ring that serves as the handle, and pull it open. Takes a second to budge, but then, boom, it pops open with such force that it nearly bowls you off your feet. On the other side of it is yet another narrow staircase, but this one is much rougher, seemingly hewn out of the cliff itself. And you can... Detect the faint scent of seawater, the beach, that salty tang emanating up from down below. Is there a ladder or anything, or is it just like a sheer narrow drop? staircase? The staircase, a roughly carved staircase. staircase. Okay. Yes. You're still going to uh, go first, Baxter? I mean, nobody else wanted to. No. Everybody else is chicken. <laughs> Baxter, I'll, I'll take the lead, but I'll need you behind me with the light, Boothby. Come now. Alright, hand me the light. Right behind me. And so you proceed. Smythe leading the way. His elephant gun clutched, pointing in front of him like a big game hunter on the Serengeti. 
booth be creeping behind, holding the lantern high, making your shadows dance on the walls of this narrow shaft as you get further and further. You descend seemingly into the bowels of the earth. It seems like you're traveling further than you actually are. In reality, go ahead. Lord Smythe says as they go. We did the world a disservice by letting those two live. And we may come to regret this. You understand that I work for the law, right? There's due process for this. You can't just kill people. What kind of insane person are you? Yes. We're here to save a child, not murder people for no reason. Well, then let's save the children. And so you continue on. Oh, yep, go, go. You had more to say. Then let's save the children. And we'll see how far the approach of not murdering goes. Because I believe our foes have already crossed their Rubicon. If what you told me about Alfredo is true. And so you continue. The passage twists and turns, grows narrower, widens out. At points, it feels like it's actively crushing down on you. Other times, funneling you through the earth. You get the sense that you're crawling through the intestine of some colossal beast rather than a simple tunnel cut out of the cliff face. And after a few minutes, it begins to widen and widen, and the scent of the sea air grows stronger. And finally, you see the dim light of the afternoon eking in through the mouth of the cave as the tunnel opens up into the cavern proper. And as you get closer, you can hear sounds, voices, children's laughter. Splashing of water. You're close. Will you be continuing on? Or are you going to be a bit cautious about this? I recommend we douse the light from and proceed as stealthily as possible. Yeah. Boothby blows at the candle wick. And I would like everybody, assuming they agree with the uh, agree with proceeding carefully, to make a stealth check for me. Oh, I paused. Hmm. I said base stealth. Yeah. Well, Wraith, is, Ruth is Wraith. Ruth is very <laughs> really sucking you know. her name today. You know, she's got a reason. She's got oh. plenty of reasons to be cautious here. Remind me what a 99 is again. Ah, uh, well, it's one oh, good. being the worst. It's not a hundred. <laughs> I passed pretty bad. on English. Yeah, Did Baxter everyone else pass? Uh, Baxter got a hard pass, Ooh. actually. Connie? Alright. Do you guys Ooh. want me to push? Ah, uh, Connie failed as well. Mentor. Failed yeah, I'm going to well. push it to see. Oh. Oh, that's, uh, a, that's a crit. Uh, 
Yes, right. it is. Yeah, on a push, I got a crit success. Yeah, push it. I'm, go so, I'm gonna I'll push. Go. I'm gonna push. Try and make right, this a clean sweep. Oh, that's a fail, but it's not uh, a 99. Oh, this so, means everything's gonna go terribly. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, as soon as as soon as is it? You hear the laughter, the laughter of children. Something seems to possess Smythe. He bears his teeth in determination and begins to trudge ahead, and it's only at the last second when he's about to step out into the mouth of the cave that Ruth has the foresight to lean out and grab him and pull him back, obscuring him just behind the lip of the little passageway that you're coming through, just long enough to witness what's outside. Don't worry. It's going to be very bad. <laughs> the afternoon sun shines brightly over ahead, overhead, casting a warm glow over the sandy beach in the mouth of the cave as children laugh and play in the surf. The air is filled with the salty tang of the sea and the joyful sounds of innocent merriment. It appears to be an idyllic scene, but something is amiss. Something deeply unsettling. You notice that the children are not alone. Strange figures, half hidden in the waves, frolic with the youngsters. Their skin is a sickly shade of green, glistening with a slimy sheen, and their eyes are dark and soulless, reflecting an ancient malevolence. A middle-aged man wearing the black robes of a priest stands in the mouth of the cave, his back to you, watching the scene unfold. I would like everybody to make a sand check. And Smythe, you're making yours at disadvantage. Oh, so how's that work? Fail. You roll, take the hot roll two dice, take the highest. Oh, all right. That's uh, a fail from Baxter. So, yeah. 64 is a success. Not by much, but it's a success. Yeah. And, nope, that's a fail for Connie. <laughs> so, those of you who pass lose 1d3 sand. Those oh. of you who fail are horrified at this scene. And Baxter, that makes sense. These are children, and you're a family man, and you lose... Smythe and Baxter, 1d8, Sand. Um, I did succeed. Is oh, you did succeed? Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah I, I mean, failed. I mean, Connie, Ruth, and Baxter. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's only two. Ooh. Fantastic. Two. That's an excellent roll. Two for me as well. Two, and Connie? Eight. Four. Four. Oof. You are deeply unsettled by the scene, by these children playing, frolicking in the water with these things that are clearly not human, these things that look like something between frog, fish, and man, their eyes ancient, malevolent. You feel right. your heart beating. Father was right, damn you feel terror beginning to take hold and then none of you lost five sand 
So no one's going temporarily insane here as you feel your mouth no. drop open, as you feel the fear beginning to well. You take deep breaths. Stealing yourselves. Ruth, I'd like you to go ahead and describe your reaction, though. Okay, uh... Yeah, I, I think the, so. The initial response is a is an instinctive fear of the unknown, but I think that it quickly turns to curiosity. What, what are they? What are they? And yet, you don't have a chance to ask because it's at this point that Smythe. In front of all of you, still clutching the elephant rifle. Realises that he's just slightly visible to whoever might be looking from the mouth of the cave. He tries to shuffle backwards into cover at just the last moment, just as the priest... ...chances this moment to look over his shoulder and catch the tip of the elephant gun being pulled beyond the lip of the cavern. He whirls around, points at the mouth of the cavern, the mouth of the cavern, and shouts a word in a language you do not understand. The children frolicking in the water let out a scream in unison and scatter for the daylight outside the cave. And then the things in the sea begin to emerge, slopping out of the water. Their feet, gigantic flippers, their hands ending in long, sharp talons. Their shoulders and backs lined with wicked-looking spines. They open their mouths, smiling in glee. And then they let out a shriek and charge at full speed towards you. Well, mm. I know what I'm doing. <sighs> so, Smythe, what's your dex? Dexterity would be... 65. 65? Boothby, what's your dex? Ruth, what's yours? Uh... 16. 60? Baxter, what's yours? Just 60. And Connie? Uh, 50. 50. All right. Let me just check my notes here. As I see who gets to go first, because it always goes in Call of Cthulhu. It always goes in order of decks. But if your weapon is drawn, that counts as having plus 100 to your deck. So right now... Boothby Ooh. has 160 decks, and Smythe has 165. But that still doesn't mean you go first, because the deep ones may have higher. Let me just check what we're dealing with here. Bad things. Luckily, none of you went insane and decided to charge at them. But you're up first, Smythe. What would you like to do? Just I'd like to rid the world of that meddlesome priest. These charging things are more of more concern, so I'm going to try to put a 404 round in the closest one. Yeah, go ahead, make a firearms check. Alright, was it 65? 
That is a hard success. Hard success. He's going to roll a dodge as he charges towards you. That is also a hard success, but yours is higher because his dodge is only 25% and your firearms is stronger than that. So... 65. Boom! The elephant gun's fire rattles through the cave, nearly deafening everyone. Go ahead and roll your damage. Okay, what's the damage on one of these things? So, an elephant rifle. Uh, let me just check. We are dealing with, if I go by the basic rules, we will count it as just a, just a slightly bigger rifle. Oh, let me check. These books are a mess sometimes. Bear with me. Yeah. Sorry, I actually didn't write this part down. No, no, it's okay. I'm just going to look it up. Um, it is an elephant rifle, so it is... Oh, let me see, let me see, let me see. Ah, here we go. Uh, 2d6 plus 4. Okay. So that'll be 8 points of damage. 8 points of damage. The shell hits the deep one center mass, blasting it off its feet. It lets out an inhuman shriek as it quickly scrambles to its feet once again and continues running. Some of its sickly green scales askew as its armor absorbs one point of damage. This could be and a bit of bother. Boothby, you're up next. What would you like to do? Um, I'm going to shoot the deep one that Smythe just shot. Yeah, go ahead, make a firearms check. Okay, I got... Uh, less than half, so I hope pass. Yeah, I'm gonna roll a dodge for him. That is a fail for him. He staggers after Smythe's shot, steadies himself, and is not aware of you stepping out into the cave mouth, raising your shotgun, and... <laughs> go ahead, roll the damage, and that will be... Uh, I'd say you're not yet at close range. You're just 2d6. 11 damage. 11 damage. His head explodes, spraying a fountain of blood and sickly green pus all over the cliff face as his body hits the ground. Good work, lad. One on the right. But the others, the other two that remain, continue charging and the priest Snowden just stands there, smiling. The other two deep ones continue closing the gap, and one of them is going to go for Boothby, trying to avenge its kin. Boothby, you can make a fighting brawl check to fight back, or you can make a dodge as it charges towards you. What am I better at? Neither, actually. Um... I'll try to fighting brawl. Go ahead. I get hard. Hard? Nice. Ah, lovely. He rolls his fighting, and he also gets a hard pass. What is your fighting brawl? Uh, 25%. So, 25%, so yeah, his is 45, so his is better degree of success than yours. You raise the shotgun, whirl it around, and, a, and try to use the butt to whack him as he 
runs towards you, but within human speed, he ducks and he shrieks, leaping up with his claws outreached and slashing at you. And you take 1d6 plus 1d4. You take eight points of damage as his sharp talons cleave through your coat and rend your flesh. Oh, that's awesome. I'm down to 3 HP. 8 points of damage. Make a con <laughs> check for me, please, Boothby. Uh, I got half, so I'd pass. You feel woozy, stumbling backwards, but you shake your head and manage to avoid instantly passing out as you bleed and begin to feel woozy. The last deep one, seeing Smy that his huge elephant gun quickly chooses his target, his eyes narrow as he locks his ga- locks gaze with Smy that he charges forwards, flailing his claw. Smy, Smythe, go ahead, roll a fighting brawl or a dodge. Oh no, we're gonna dodge this. Come on, Ken. Come on, you big bastard. Are you Dagon? I wonder if you're Dagon. That's a one. Yeah, that's a one. He leaps. His little spindly legs seeming to snap before your eyes as he pounces. And you take this opportunity to step out of the way. He lets out an otherworldly wail as he flies past you and lands sprawled in the mouth of the cavern. All right. Ruth, you're up. What would you like to do? Like she's looking around for anything that might provide an advantage. There are plenty That's of all. The, all she can around. do for combat is like she has she she can use a sword, and I don't think she has a sword on her. So, mm. you could pick up a rock and use that as an impromptu weapon, or you could just find a place to get. You could just find a way to get to safety and hope the others sort this out. Hmm, neither appeals. Um, <laughs> I don't think she'd be very good with a rock, to say the least. Um, well, you probably do have uh, one of your fencing foils with you, because... Okay, she's just got that on her, okay? <laughs> How much we you... were going into trouble, so... Yeah, this you knew true. you were going into trouble, so you would have brought it with you. Okay, then she's stabbing at her face. Yeah, the one that's lying sprawled right in front of you as it struggles to get up you unsling your fencing foil and for a moment it's as if you're on stage a renaissance sword fight go ahead and roll me a fighting brawl check and he's gonna roll one of his own assuming a position that she's held many times she lunges forward and she passes on a push passes on a push nice yeah he rolls his fighting brawl and he also passes it's a normal pass what's your fighting brawl fighting brawl uh just base 25 base 25 okay his is higher at 45 so as you step down at him he opens his mouth lets out a shriek and bats this edge of the foil away with the back of his hand and then with blinding speed leaps up flinging himself at you his claws flailing at your face and you take 
five points of damage as one of his talons tears down your right cheek. Uh, she just died. <laughs> How much HP did she have? <laughs> she was on five of ten. Five of ten, yeah. That is a major wound, so yeah... As she steadies herself and his claw slashes down her face, it seems to tear the skin right off her skull, and she goes down silently to the ground. Go ahead, make me a con check to oh, see shit. if you die instantly, or if you get a few rounds can of I bleeding push that? out. You sure can. Oh wow, she super fails. Well, well yeah. that was quick! <laughs> yeah, well. Ruth well, hits Ruth. Ruth Ooh, hits man. the ground as, and as she does, the Deep One sinks its claws in even deeper. It seemingly pulls her down to the ground beside it and then opens its mouth, roaring in bloodlust as it snaps back its hand and <laughs> rips Ruth's head clean off her body. Her face still gritted in determination, frozen forever, dangling off the edge of its talon. Alright, it's, it's been good. You'll have fun. <laughs> Bye, Ruth! Ruth's disembodied head says her last words. Yeah. Baxter, what would you like to do? Um, upon seeing this, Baxter absolutely panics, grabs his baseball bat, and rushes at the thing. Yeah, the one that just killed Comes Ruth. out of swing. Go ahead, make a fighting brawl check. Ah, uh, that is a fail. That is a fail. <laughs> that is a fail. You can push if you like. Uh, I could, but it feels kind of wrong to always push. Yeah. So, you swing your baseball bat at the monster and miss, and as your baseball bat cleaves the air and clunk lands on the rock face, the creature hisses, raises its claw to retaliate, but the weight of Ruth's head still dangling from its talons seems to weigh it down ever so slightly, and as it slashes at you, you simply step back as it cuts the air. Connie, you're up. What would you like to do? Uh, yeah, I think it seeing that just Connie just like, yeah, lets out a frantic scream and it's just gonna run back up the stairs. It's like, holy shit, someone just got decapitated in front of her. Yeah, I'd like you to go ahead and make a dex check for me. Wasn't sure what to do, and then that made it pretty easy. <laughs> yep. That jury would convict you. Uh, what is that? Uh, 30, so it's just regular success. 30? So the the last deep one, the one that's squaring off with Boothby uh, and Smythe, <laughs> reaches out, slashing at you as you duck past it, letting out a scream. <gasps> And then you barrel up, barrel back into the cavern until you can no longer see them, till you can no longer smell the blood, and then you just throw yourself behind a large rock and cower there, shaking. It's 
Snowden smiles, surveying the chaos. Embrace Lord Dagon! Or face the punishment of the Christian God, he says. Where is he? He Where will is be. Dagon? Father Dagon watches. And he waits, waits for those who truly love him to spread his word. What's it going to be? Turn back the way you came and leave alone? Or do you insist on giving away your lives? Smythe is chambering around while he's shouting, by the way. Yeah. Well, you're up next, Smythe. So go ahead. All right. The one on Boothby is going to get disintegrated, hopefully. <sighs> Roll a fire No time to switch weapons. Point blank get shot with the elephant rifle. Sixteen out of sixty-five. Sixteen. I'm going to roll a dodge check. Ooh, seventy-seven. So it's about to attack Boothby, and as Snowden raises his hands and prepares to call out yet another refrain, you take this opportunity to simply step forwards, standing in the mouth of the cavern, raising your elephant gun and firing. Boof! Go ahead, 2d6 plus 6. 2d6 six? plus 4. 4, okay, yeah, I was going to say. Uh, 15 points. 15 points. Another gunshot echoes throughout the cabin, throughout the cavern as a single shell cleaves the fishman's face in two and he goes down. Stop it! shouts Snowden. There's one deep one left staggering towards you. Root's head still Impaled on the end of its talon. Stop! The children of Dagon mean you no harm. You come here, you're the one who points and shoots. Stop it! Stop it! Embrace the love, the kindness. Your arguments would have been more pertinent one seven head ago, you madman! Boothby, you're up. The one just died, right? Yeah, but there's one last one left, the one that decapitated Ruth and that Baxter took a valiant swing at. Think. I think Boothby's going to try to rush Snowden. As in tackle him, or shoot I've, him? I think shooting. I think that he kind of is under the impression that these things are under the control of Snowden somehow. That's entirely fair assumption to make. And so, so you peer over your shoulder at the Deep One, still there, a few meters up the cavern, shrieking, smashing Root's decapitated head against the wall, desperately trying to get it off its talon. 
and then you whirl around and Snowden's smile turns into an O of shock as you raise your shotgun and point it at him. Go ahead. Make a firearms check. I'm just gonna push that real fast. Oh, I hate this dice button. Ooh, there you go. 23, so, uh, hard pass. Yeah, I'm gonna roll a dodge for him. 88. That's a fail for him. He's not expecting you to fire at him. After all, there's a deep one just behind you. And he has just enough time to register what you're about to do as he sees your finger tighten on the trigger. He opens his mouth to say something and then... Boothby, do you have a cool one-liner? Do you have anything you want to say to him before you gun him down? Um... No. I think Boothby's... Behead dead this. at this point. <laughs> Behead this! You want heads? I'll give you heads. Phrasing. Wait, 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 wait. Looks like I've come up heads. <laughs> oh, oh there God. you go. <laughs> Boom! His mouth opens, but he doesn't get a syllable out. The gunshot echoes around the cave. Seemingly shaking the very rock itself. And where Father Snowden stands, the headless corpse staggers forwards, raising its hand, closing its fingers together, reaching out to the heavens, and then slumps forwards, blood spilling out of the hole in its neck, pooling around it, painting the damp rock bright crimson. Behind you, there's a shriek. You all whirl around to see the deep one raise its talon one more time and bring Ruth's head down on a jagged rock. <laughs> the jagged rock impales the side of Ruth's head, cleaning it in two, finally freeing the Deep One of its obstruction. It stares at you, its eyes narrow, glowing with rage and anger. And then it sees its patron's corpse, sees Father Snowden lying there on the cave floor, blood pooling around him. And if you didn't know that monsters could feel fear, if you ascribed human emotions to this thing at all, you would think right now, as it flinches, as its twisted smile changes into gritted teeth, as its eyes twitch, with uncertainty that it was feeling fear. Tell your Dagon we're coming for him. 
it edges backwards away into the darkness. Then you see it turn on its heels as it disappears into the blackness. Here, the sloshing of shallow water and then a splash as it runs for the ocean. The ocean that is its home. And then all is quiet. Um, so Boothby is going to kind of lower his gun and then proceed to vomit violently. Yeah. Steady lad. <coughs> steady lad. You did well. First time's always the hardest. Steady. Steady. In fact, so for people. I'd like everyone present to go ahead and make a sand check as your blood begins to slow. As the adrenaline subsides, <laughs> and you see Ruth lying there, her body broken, headless in the mouth of the cave. A big smear of blood leading from her neck across the cliff face to the pile of bone, brain matter, and gore that once contained the essence of her personality. And all that she was. Uh, that's a fail for Baxter. Not yeah. even killing the Mary, but I need you to know that Ruth rolled a 99 on that sanity check. Oh, yeah, so she'd be <laughs> terribly shocked at her own death. <laughs> Couldn't be more perfect. That, that's a pass um, from Smythe. Uh, would, would Connie need to roll, being up that. Up the, up yeah. Uh, now that now that the, now that the chaos is over, you have you stop and reflect. And you can notice depending on how this goes, for he's swimming coming from the passageway up ahead. Yeah, depending yeah. on how this goes for Baxter, he might go back up to the um to the house. Yeah, maybe. Brandishing a baseball bat. Yeah. So we'll see. Who passed and who failed? Uh, Baxter failed. Baxter it's failed. Pass for Smythe. Pass for Smythe. Pass for Boothby. Yeah. So if you pass, Connie just passed. That's a sand loss of one d. 1d4. And if Ooh. you failed, that's a sand loss of 1d8. This is the first death of this group yep. that you've witnessed. And it hits uh, hard. A... It does. That's four lost. Four yeah, lost. it's four, four for me too. Four, four for me. 62. <sighs> Everyone lost four. Everyone fours. We yeah. liked Ruth. She was alright, I guess. So, no, four. Four. <laughs> I will, simply, I will simply say this, Baxter, you feel a sense of righteous anger stirring within you. You feel your fingers tightening around the handle of the baseball bat so tight that they're beginning to hurt as if they're trying to dig into the metal, as if they're trying to become one with it. Smythe loads the elephant gun and you feel that same sense of burning rage innocent blood spilled how many more will they take baxter smythe do you give in oh 100 percent to the rage mm. i look we can i get the feeling we kind of look at each other look back up the stairs 
You draw the bat, he draws the revolver. Yep, that's exactly what I was going to say. Great minds. Two more gunshots ring out from the lonely farmhouse, echoing through the farmyard, startling the chickens, causing them to screech and scatter. After the work is done, Smythe looks at the scene, slides a kitchen knife into the woman's hand, pulls a twenty-two pistol from his pocket, wipes it clean, and presses it into the dead farmer's hand. Now let's go down to the beach and see what we can do, do about those children, shall we? Uh, Baxter has no response. He's still not fully processing what's happening. The baseball bat still trembling in his hand, even as fresh blood drips off the end onto the kitchen linoleum. The good news is that Carter Anderson is safe. The infant screams wail through the cave. It's very easy to follow the sound through the network of tunnels and find him in a little room sequestered away in the bowels of the earth, lying in a rough-hewn crib. He's unharmed. He's not hurt. And he's too young for any of this to have left a psychological scar. The others, I'm sad to say, are not as lucky. You try your best to calm them, to reach out to them, to tell them that they're safe, that their horrors are at an end. They stare back at you, blank-eyed. Their faces void of expression. And recite in unison. Our Father loves us. He would never subject us to harm. One day, we return to the ocean. Yet more fodder for the sanitarium. More Daniel Ameses to be tossed into the system Tucked away, out of sight, out of mind. But, Carter Anderson is safe and sound, and Charles Anderson, for the first time since he's given you this job, weeps. Real emotion tears flowing down his face as he weeps with joy. His son is alive. His son is safe. He doesn't even notice that you're shaken. He doesn't notice that Connie holds herself shaking, crying. He doesn't notice that one of your number is missing. He writes the checks then and there, addresses it to Baxter and hands it over with a flourish. 
And I'll let my friends know if they've ever got a problem that you're the one to come to, Mr. Baxter. You can hold me to that, he says. Yeah, uh, send them my way. Baxter is far too despondent with the entire situation that he's been through, but still appreciates the work. And that concludes Bless the Beast and Children. For saving the children, even though some of them will never quite be the same again, you each gain 1d6 Sen. For dealing with Henry Snowden and ensuring that he will never threaten anyone again, you gain another 1d6 Sen. You may roll your luck, and if you fail, you may increase your luck by 1d10. If your luck is below 30, you may increase it by 2d10. You may select any three of your skills, and this could be the same skill multiple times, and increase it by 1d10. You all also increase your Cthulhu Mythos skill by 1d6. Bridget. Ash. Ruth. Oh, my name's... <laughs> has not made it, unfortunately. So you get to create a new character, but they don't start from scratch. When you create them, you can pick any three skills and give them a skill boost of 1d10. Oh, sweet. They're slightly more prepared than Ruth was for the things to come. In addition, Boothby, you made it out of there with Henry Snowden's journal. It's a mythos tome. It's sure to be full of interesting information once you finally take the time to fully process it. But most importantly, just from skimming through it, you find the instructions for what appear to be two magic spells. I'm going to put them in Discord. The first, Yay. Fist of Yogg-Sothoth, and the second, mm. Chant of Thoth. They're both there, ready to learn. All you need to do is reach out and learn them. An intelligence check for each one. And of course, anyone you share the tome to may also partake in this. But I will say that once one person has learned to spell, no one else can learn it. I'll leave that with you. Okay. That concludes this episode, and oh, what an episode it was. May I add something quickly? Go ahead. When Lord Smythe reunites with Colin, he's got a grisly package tucked under one arm. And later on, in his chambers, at Carter's house, 
is going to quietly boil the flesh off of the deep one claws and teeth he took from the two corpses. Two corpses and naked necklace of them. It gives him no peace, but it's a start. Stop. Next time. Next time. An old acquaintance reaches out and pulls you further into the nightmare.